Ayla Brooke and the Soundman, that's uh, from Desolation Sounds, Fallen Tree Records. Not our title track, technically, but the tune that Samuel Brooks gives us into every Friday show. Sam looked over, Sarah Hoyles witnessed it, a little panicked, because because Sam, you're, you're an engineer, you're, you're a tech guy, and Sam's going, it's 8.32, and we're going, we do whatever the hell we want. And it's Friday, and the band is playing, and let's let them finish. I would say it was worth it. Do you feel like it was it worth was it? It was worth it. It was. I was wrong. It was worth. No, it. no, no. Not you were wrong. You were. Ke- you were. You were keeping us on track. You were providing us the parameters for excellence, diligence, efficiency, delivering what we promised to deliver, which is live every single morning at eight thirty Mountain, ten thirty Eastern. But I bet you more than a few people, especially especially the real talkers that, that have invested in 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 more than just the lousy laptop speakers. Like, I bet you real talkers, maybe they're tuned in like with headphones on like good headphones or big. I bet you they had it cranked. I wouldn't be surprised if they had it cranked. Somebody's got a tube amp and some big towers listening to this. Yeah, yeah that'd be nice. You know what I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Why don't we kick off by reminding everybody that each and every morning our show is presented by our title sponsor, the team at Bitcoin. Well, crypto right now is is Elon Musk determining everything with regards to crypto right now? You know, Elon says something like Tesla's not accepting Bitcoin anymore. And then all of a sudden Bitcoin plummets by like 30 percent. Then everybody that's big on Bitcoin buys and everybody else panics sells and people try to make sense of it. And then Mark Cuban comes forward and and says, uh, basically, I'm selling Tesla stock to buy more Bitcoin. So eat that, Elon. And we're all going, oh, boy. So put it this way. CEO of Bitcoin. Well, Adam O'Brien's going to be on the show next week. I'm thinking we're going to put together a crypto panel. We want a panel with some different perspectives, make sense of it. But that whole Elon Musk thing, that kind of weirds me out. These are the exact types of questions that the team at Bitcoin Well can answer for you. You're trying to make sense of it. You can find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I'm, I'm trying to find that uh, specifically what it was that uh, that uh, Mark Cuban had to say to to Elon Musk just the other day. Sarah, do you have it? I remember we, we were sharing this back and forth with each other. Oh, the yeah. other day. You know what happens? I don't, I don't know if you're the same way, but if I have to call up something quickly on the fly, I'm yeah. like, is it in my Facebook messages? Is it on Instagram? Is it in my Twitter DMs? Is it on an email? Is it a text? I have no freaking idea, which is why your organization is so appreciated <laughs> on this show. What was it again? We were we were we were buzzing about this. Well, I was like, uh oh, yeah. Oh, well, Uh-oh. I believe because Elon's piling on Bitcoin, yeah. right? I believe my exact. Uh, it was a DM. My DM was, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> And it's from The Guardian saying Elon Musk says Tesla will no longer accept Bitcoin due yeah. to fossil fuel. Right. And then I believe you responded with point counterpoint yeah. with the uh, Mark Cuban tweet, which is we at Mavs.com will continue to accept Bitcoin, Doge, etc. Because yeah. we know that replacing gold as a store of value will help the environment. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I, I love it when eccentric billionaires start to publicly squabble. It's, the, it's only good for the rest of us. You know what I'm saying? It's only good for the rest of us. So, yeah, you, you've got people that are trying to make sense of all that. And we'll be talking about that next week. We have a great show in store today. Um, I'm excited about a booking uh, that, that Sarah uh, lined up. We're going to be getting to uh, Dr. Raywatt. Dionandon uh, uh, in just a moment, an epidemiologist, uh, a professor, director of the Interdisciplinary School of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Uh, we're talking about kids and vaccines. And this is prompted by uh, messages we've been receiving from you. This is this is the real life stuff that that matters to us. I mean, yeah, we're, you know, we keep an eye on the news headlines. We know what politicians and and, you know, industry leaders and everybody are talking about. But we feel such a, a special connection with this audience uh, that when you write in to us and, and talk about your kids being vaccinated, do you mind teeing up that email? Can we get into it? <clears throat> what was it? It was a it was an audience member that reached out. Right. I mean, we were taking a look at this. Uh, this, of course, because, you know, provinces across Canada, specifically, we'll talk about Alberta right now, about four days ago, um, you know, approved vaccine bookings. They approved appointments. They opened up appointments for Albertans uh, born uh, in 92 all the way up to 2009. So we're talking as young as 12 years old. And, and who was it that reached out again? Jeanette McGregor. Yeah. And what does she have to say? She said, hi, Ryan. I'm a parent of a 14-year-old. My husband and I will be discussing with her tonight whether or not she should get the vaccine. She goes on to say, I have been vaccinated and my husband has been vaccinated. There was no hesitation or question if we would get it. Right. Now with my daughter, I'm hesitating a little because where I have no problem taking a little risk for me, I definitely don't want when it comes to my daughter. My first thought is yes. She will get the vaccine, but I'm a little hesitant with no huge studies like there was for adults. Is there someone you can bring on the podcast that could discuss these COVID vaccines and kids? And you said there sure is. Oh, heck yeah. Oh, heck yeah. So the good doctor will join us in just a second. Obviously, we're paying attention to other stories that are making news. Uh, MLAs, we talked about Todd Lowen yesterday, former uh, chair of the United Conservative Caucus, tendering his resignation as chair of the caucus, calling for the premier's resignation. And surprise, surprise, uh, a caucus meeting uh, yesterday saw MLA Lowen as well as MLA Drew Barnes expelled from the United Conservative Party caucus over allegations they divided the party and they undermined government leadership. So the 62-member caucus, United Conservative Caucus, met for hours uh, Thursday afternoon. The results released yesterday evening. Uh, UCP caucus whip Mike Ellis uh, said in an email, and by the way, I'm referencing Michelle Belfontaine's amazing reporting uh, for the CBC at cbc.ca. She says, uh, quoting Mike Ellis in an email, caucus whip members recognize the need for government caucus to remain strong and united behind our leader, Premier Jason Kenney, as we continue to fight through what looks to be the final stages. That's a dangerous and irresponsible thing to say, but I digress. The final stages of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Um, That's not what I'm going to hook my claws into, but you don't know, uh, respectfully, Mike Ellis, that this is the final stages of COVID-19, and it sends a weird message, but I digress. Uh, So they they need the government caucus to remain strong. They need it to remain united behind leader Jason Kenney. Uh, Absolutely accurate. They do need the caucus to remain strong, and they do need to remain united under Premier Jason Kenney, because if they don't, they're going to absolutely lose control of this whole thing. Uh, And we've received... 
really varying feedback. I'm curious. I keep I keep wanting to pick your brain, Sarah, because you're still I'm, I'm still introducing you to people. We had we had a like a Zoom call yesterday with someone we might be partnering with in Michigan. And, and I'm like, this is our new producer, Sarah Hoyles. I'm like, at what point? It's like when we stopped calling Sidney Crosby, Sid, the kid. Like, at what point are you no longer the new producer? But isn't it, I'm curious to pick your brain on what you make because you're CC'd on all the emails we get to talk at RyanJesperson.com and there's not been consensus, hey, in, in opinions of the of this audience on the significance of what Drew, Bine, Drew Barnes has been up to and Angela Pitt for that matter out of Airdrie and and what Todd Lowen was up to, right? I mean, some people are saying this is amazing, this is great, let's watch it all burn. Others are saying I saw Bruce Arthur uh, tweet at us from Toronto today, obviously a national commentator. Bruce said, I trust Ryan's gut on Alberta, but like who's the better option? Basically, a lot of people right now are saying Todd Lowen's no hero. Todd Lowen's one of those that's been calling for all restrictions to be lifted. I mean, this it it could be disastrous if if, if his movement kind of catches on. If Drew Barnes movement catches on, there's there's not been consensus with the audience. Absolutely not. I think there are people that are, you know, there's a little bit of a celebratory feel around. Oh, look at look at this just burning down. But it's I think if we take one step further, which folks are writing to us about is that, okay? so who then takes over the leadership? Exactly. And do we the devil, you know, versus the devil you don't. I mean, I don't want to call anybody a devil, but (laughs) I know there were implications there. So the word evil was popping up during yesterday's show. Yes. Which, you know, people and are hate and- evil and hate. And, and um, what was that? I think rage. Was it Alyssa? One of our audience members yesterday said voters were not driven by hate, but they were in 2019, but they were driven by rage. Yeah. And I actually thought that that was a really great. I, 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 I did take issue with the hate comment. And I absolutely the minute I read her say rage, I went, yeah, that that fits. That was an it it was an angry. uh, Geez, I'm trying to pick my words carefully. I just an angry Mm. voting mob. I don't know if I want to call it a mob. I mean, we got to pick our words carefully these days because we try to reflect uh, public opinion, uh, including the temperature. Mm. And at the same time. You don't want to be fanning flames and misrepresenting where things are at and getting people to a point where there's this sort of frenzied uh, where you almost lose perspective over where the focus needs to be. Right. As, as a friend of mine often says, we need to be playing chess, not checkers. I love that. Isn't it great? Yeah. I, I mean, some people because they're like, ah, come on. It's just words like it's, it's not going to hurt you. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but yeah. names will never hurt me. But like words have power words do have power Huge so i'm not power. describing voters as an angry mob but certainly rage driven uh by many and i think that it's fair to say that a lot of people are, are furious right now as well i mean we're going to be getting to some of your emails um <laughs> i have some really good ones right now that would fit r- exactly what we're talking about um but at the same time trash talks coming up in like an hour and a half and so i i feel like it would be a bit of a waste to blow off that steam now i do have this I got an email from a, a former cabinet minister, an NDP cabinet minister, Marge McQuaig Boyd. She was minister of energy. And uh, so she's seen a lot and uh, she's heard a lot. And um, I clarified with her when she sent this to me. I said, like, can I can I read this on the record? Is this on the record? She goes, yeah, you can read it. This is what somebody told me. You can read it. Sure. She says, I ran against Todd Lowen in the last election, ran against him and lost. She was the minister, right? She says he never once mentioned Jason Kenney's name as his leader 
but he proudly ran under the UCP banner. He told one of my supporters, an oil and gas guy, who asked him why he was running for that, quote, piece of shit, that Jason Kenny would be gone in a year. That's what Todd Lowen said. Kenny would be gone in a year. Mark says this, this supporter used to support the Wild Rose, but did not support the United Conservatives. She says, Marg says, and she knows her way, obviously, around cabinet, around government. She says, I do not believe Jason Kenny will resign. I 100% agree with her. Said that yesterday. No chance. She says he'll go down swinging. She says, I think that there will be others this week that will join Todd and their next decision needs to be whether or not they'll stay in the UCP or not. While they have lost faith in the leader, I would suggest, says Albert's former energy minister, that many of them, these MLAs, never did have faith in Jason Kenney, but they used him to get elected. And I don't think or I don't believe that they can have it both ways now. That from Mark McQuaig Boyd, former energy minister for the province of Alberta. So that's an interesting one. Now, she wrote that email to us before caucus booted Lowen and Barnes. So I don't know if that changes anything. Like, I, you know, Angela Pitt is, is another one who you might look at to say she might be next. I mean, if Drew Barnes gets the boot, Angela Pitt might be next. I've seen people saying today, Angela Pitt's done enough in Airdrie to secure reelection regardless of who she runs for. This is speculative. Of course, you never know. That's why we have elections, right? Derek Fildebrandt would be an MLA if we didn't hold elections and we just paid attention to social media. Instead, definitely not an MLA. So it'll be curious to see what happens there. Drew Barnes, by the way, of note, still the only United Conservative MLA to appear on this show in history, though we have invited many. So uh, I'm curious to see what happens over the weekend, over the next few days. And of course, we'll be picking this story up if, if, like we said, we've been laughing as a team when we talked on Wednesday afternoon, heading into Thursday's show. We say we are only talking about hunting, meat, plant proteins, food sustainability and the ethics around eating on Thursday. That's all we're talking about. And then at the last minute, you know, 15 year career in broadcasting, my brain told me to say, unless all hell breaks loose. And then all hell broke loose. And so yesterday we tried to find that balance. So I will say again, uh, later on in the show today, we're going to be talking about vaccines and kids and innovation. We've got a great roundtable coming up. Innovation. The question is how in partnership with our friends at Edify Edmonton. And then we're going to be taking a close look at Palestine. Uh, That's coming up in about an hour and 15 minutes. But. If news drops, if something wild happens across the country, Sarah's, of course, keeping an eye on that type of thing. And we will reflect that in our content. I wanted to remind you today that our hashtag is powered by the team at Park Power. It's Real Talk RJ. If you're on Twitter, even on Instagram, that's the hashtag you want to use to make sure that it's included in what we're keeping an eye on. The team at Park Power, by way of their social media accounts, encourage you to check them out on Instagram, on Twitter. They've got some great tips on how you can cut down your power bill. That's right. The company selling you your power wants you to pay less. That says something to me. So there's efficiency tips there. Plus shouts out to some of the nonprofits they support through their profit sharing arrangement. Park Power has been around coming up on 10 years now offering internet, electricity, and natural gas to both residential and commercial customers. Again, at parkpower.ca, if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK, you'll save 70 bucks off your first bill. 
The team at Clean Air Club wants to remind you that your family can breathe easy and you can save money doing so by signing up at cleanairclub.ca. All you do is find the size of furnace filter you need. It's printed right on the side of the cardboard. It's, it, it's that thing sticking out of your furnace. If you didn't know you're supposed to change it, today's a great day to change it. Go to cleanairclub.ca. They drop it off right at your door, sometimes the very next day, and you're going to pay less than you do in the big box store via cleanairclub.ca. Also, a big shout out to the team at Grand Dog Essentials. Both Sarah and I feed our four-legged family members their quality raw food. Ranger, Moses, Monroe joining this this, this conglomerate of dogs with glamorous coats, healthy guts, and do I say around breakfast time, solid healthy poops? I mean, if you clean up, if you're picking up after your dog and your dog's not healthy, sorry to say this around breakfast time, or if you're listening to the podcast, maybe right before your dinner, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Picking up with a shovel has never been so pleasant. As when we saw, they're going to be like, Jesperson, did you really do our entire commercial spot on Friday about dog shit? I'm going to say, yeah, I did. Well, you know, if anyone is a dog owner, you know that you talk about dog poop. It's you do. Just, it's a reality. Especially this time of year. Like, we're just Sam's nodding. You know, too. I mean, we're just through the worst of it because when the snow and ice all melted, that's the worst. That's the anyway. I'll, I'll get off this subject. But I just want to tell you, this is real talk. If you want to know how this is really worth your investment in quality raw food, that's one of the big indicators. At granddog.ca, if you use the promo code REALTALK, they're going to give you 10% off your first-time order. Plus, they deliver to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and across central Alberta. Let's get to this. Kids and vaccines. We know that this matters to a lot of you. We know we have young audience members. We hear from high school students that send us emails. It's absolutely amazing to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You're wondering about the best play for yourself. Plus, parents are wondering, should my 12-year-old, my 13-year-old be getting vaccinated? Dr. Raywat Dionandan is an epidemiologist, uh, associate professor and assistant director at the Interdisciplinary School of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Doc, a big smile smeared across your face. You probably weren't expecting the conversation leading into this. I apologize, but but sometimes we got to talk about real life. You know what I mean? That's real life. <laughs> no, I'm smiling because you pronounce my name so well. Oh. I always like wait for the pronunciation. That was really good. Okay, well, thank you, doctor. <laughs> hey, listen, we're really, we're grateful that you were able to make time for us today. We know there's a lot of polls on your schedule. Why don't, why don't we get right into this? Um, when it comes to vaccines and kids, the conversations, or let me say young people, the conversation's a little bit different, isn't it, than where we're talking about seniors or, or the adult population? Right. Yeah, it's all about risk versus reward. And it's a difficult computation for people to do for themselves. So what's the risk of getting COVID and then the risk of having a bad experience with COVID? versus what's the reward you get from a vaccine combined with what's the risk of the vaccine. So that ratio is, is what we have to balance here. And then the further complication is, is there another motivation to get vaccinated beyond your individual protection? I'm talking here about societal population protection. So let's break it down. Uh, kids, as I think we all know, are less likely to be hospitalized and less likely to die of COVID. They're not zero. The risk is not zero. Absolutely not. But the risk of, of something bad happening is small. Um, and therefore, the risk, uh, the impetus, the uh, motivation for getting vaccinated might also be small. However, if we want to reach herd immunity or if we want to protect family members of kids who might contract it from school, then that's a further impulse to get the kid vaccinated. It's a difficult conversation for parents to have. A, I'm totally sympathetic. Do you I've been um, yeah, I've been trying to wrap my mind 
around uh, like at a layperson's level of understanding where the science is with our understanding of kids. And there seems to be the assertion, and I'm really grateful that you clarified that, that the kid, you know, vaccinating young people may not necessarily just benefit young people, but it, but it goes to the bigger conversation about uh, do, do, do I invoke herd immunity or am I misusing that <laughs> phrase? Maybe. Uh, no, I mean, herd immunity is talked about too much. But let's break that down. Please. If we think herd immunity is reached at 70 percent of the population being immune. It's probably higher than that, to be honest. And that's based upon how infectious the disease is. If it's more infectious, we need more people having resistance to it to prevent the people who are not immune from getting access to the virus. So let's assume it's 70%. 70% of the Canadian population, that's like all the adults over 18. Are all the adults going to get vaccinated? And if they do, will the vaccine work on 100% of them? Probably not. Therefore, if we want to achieve herd immunity, we're going to have to vaccinate some kids or have some kids recover from infection and get uh, immunity that way. So it seems pretty unavoidable that if herd immunity is the goal, uh, the kids have to be part of this conversation. But herd immunity might not be the goal. We may be sufficient with a certain level of population immunity layered on top of that, some public health assets like better testing, some uh, surveillance so that when small outbreaks occur, we descend on them and, and stifle them. For example, we haven't got herd immunity against um, uh, the flu, <laughs> right. but we deal with it every year. You know, So there are ways to control this without necessarily eliminating it, even though that would be. And by the way, let's back up for a second. There are in general three ways of dealing with respiratory viruses. You control them, you eliminate them, or you eradicate them. Eradication we've done twice in human history, rinderpest and smallpox. We're not going to do it for COVID for a number of reasons. Elimination is when we drive it out of our borders and prevent it from coming in. We've done, done that with polio, for example. We could probably do that uh, with COVID, but I don't think we will because the price is pretty high. Australia and New Zealand managed it. Uh, we probably won't. So that leaves control. We can probably get somewhere between control and elimination with a lot of vaccination and keeping our eyes out for uh, outbreaks here and there, right? at least for a few years until the disease magically peters away, possibly. But let's, let's go back to risk versus reward, because this is what people care about. So far, the only data for kids and vaccination we have is from Pfizer. And it's a very good data. Uh, I think they enrolled about 2,000 people in their trial, 2,000 kids age 12 to 15, if I'm not wrong. And um, they found that all of the cases of COVID, 16 cases, only came in the placebo group. That means 100% protection in the vaccinated group. Mm. Now, real-life data is never as good as clinical trial data. Keep that in mind. But that's pretty good signal, considering in the adult clinical trial is like 95%. So it's better than the adult situation. So you're saying that the, the vaccine might work better on young people than in adults? Uh, yeah, or the vaccine combined with young people's natural resistance okay. might give a, a you know better effect. Um, but what parents want to hear about is the safety signal. Yeah. So uh, nobody was hospitalized or got seriously ill from the vaccine in the trial, but a lot of people got an adverse reaction. So 91% had pain on the side of injection, which is not unusual, but 78% had fatigue or headache, which is actually good news because it means that your body is mounting an immunogenic response. Now, I'm, I'm careful to say that because... Uh, if you don't get that reaction, it doesn't mean your body didn't mount an immunogenic response. It's just your body is saying, hey, look at me. I got antibodies now. So it's a good thing and is more common in the second dose than the first dose, as we saw amongst the adults as well. So all signs point to, at least from the clinical trial, that it works really well amongst children and the adverse events that they experience are similar to that experienced by adults. 
we didn't see any of the things you saw scarily back in December, like um, balanced palsy, some neurological conditions, anaphylaxis that we saw uh, when the Pfizer vaccine first unrolled in England. That has not been seen. But the caveat is we only enrolled uh, two to 3,000 people. And sometimes with really rare events, you got to enroll tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, to get that one or two rare thing. So that's the clinical trial data. looks very safe. Then if you look at the real-life data for how the vaccines are doing in a place like Ontario that I have access to uh, the data for, we've had out of 6 million doses so far, 86 reported adverse events, which gives us a prevalence of 0.001% of adverse reactions, none of which, those are serious ones, by the way, and we define serious as requiring hospitalization. Zero deaths. So there are three deaths amongst uh, seniors, but it seems that none of those deaths were uh, the vaccination was the underlying cause. So that's that's important news. So that's the risk of the vaccination. If we assume it works the same in kids, that's good news. But what is the risk of kids in COVID? So uh, uh, an Australian epidemiologist, uh, Gideon M. Case, his name, he goes by, he has computed that for every million kids who get COVID, we can expect 50 to 60 would die of it which is a small number compared to the adults, but 50, 60 dead kids is not great for anybody. Of course. That works out to 0.005%. So if you're comparing the risk of an adverse reaction from the vaccine at 0.001% versus the risk of death from COVID, it's 0.005%. So right now, the, the scales tip in favor of vaccination. However, what's the risk of actually getting COVID? That changes day to day. And if you're a kid, that's it's coming down every day because we are uh, implementing better uh, precautions. However, uh, kids tend to have more contacts than adults, about three times more contacts. They see more people during the week than we do because we are lonely old men who have no friends. The kids have you know, 3,200 friends they see every week. So the chances of a kid getting a viral disease is actually higher if it, that disease is prevalent. So it's a complicated list of, of things I've thrown at you, all of which is to say, that um, it's not an easy conversation, but the chances of your kid getting COVID in the next six months, probably very, very small, but the chances of your kid getting COVID in the next 10 years, pretty high yeah. if they're not vaccinated, close to 100% possibly. So do you see, um, doctor, a time where, I mean, are we going to be vaccinating? I mean, you know, in like newborns or whatever it is when they're six months or I can't remember with our little yeah. guy, but, but those inoculations and, and it is like, you know, the MMR and all that kind of stuff. And it's why we don't see. Uh, can you see that being part of it? I mean, are we ultimately going to be vaccinating yeah. toddlers and babies? And I think so. By the way, it's my baby's one year old birthday today. And oh. we're having the MMR. MMR vaccine conversation as we speak. So this is all relevant to us as well. So, um, yeah, there is uh, Moderna is actually uh, doing their phase two, three trial for six month olds. Right. Uh, and so uh, Pfizer expects to be applying for emergency use authorization to vaccinate two year olds by the end of the summer. So, yeah, the, the ages are dropping steadily. Will we be seeing this as a regular advised vaccine for kids? I, I really can't say. Um, currently with the flu vaccine, babies don't get that. Um, so I would be surprised if it ends up being the standard pediatric dose, especially as prevalence declines over the next few years. But while prevalence is relatively high around the world, and if you live in a city where travelers are coming in from hot zone areas, or if you are a part of a family that has substantial travel exposure, then uh, it might be advised by your pediatrician to uh, to explore that option. Again, uh, no crystal ball here, 
But the thing to keep in mind, too, is as tens of millions of people get this vaccination, bad things are going to happen to a couple of people. This is the nature of the law of of large numbers. And that's going to scare people. So some kids are going to have some bad reactions when this gets to the million stage mark. Uh, um, So that's going to be a, a panicky moment. Um, and it's easy to say, hey, it's a rare event. But if you're that rare event, that doesn't offer you any solace. I'm not uh, I'm not in a position to talk about details, but I can just say there's I, I've heard of a heartbreaking incident yesterday of somebody that I know uh, their family has been impacted by a, a bad vaccine experience of a very bad situation. And and I'll tell you, doctor, I'm, I, I've spent all day. I walked with it last night. It's still in my head this morning. My heart's hurting for them. And, and it's be, and and as a public commentator and as someone with a platform, I can sit here and say, you know, blood clots have happened, you know, 17 people over millions of vaccinations and it's a negligible number. But but those people are people and those are families. Yeah. And we can't just brush yeah, exactly. it off and pretend like it's nothing. hundred percent. hundred percent. Now, it's important to know here that we're talking about vaccinating kids. We're only talking about the Pfizer vaccine so far. And there isn't a blood clot risk associated right. with the Pfizer Good vaccine point. as far as we know. Okay. Mind you, in the USA, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is being trialed amongst children. So they will be applying for emergency use authorization for kids there. I don't see that happening in Canada. I don't see the appetite amongst the public to accept a blood clot associated vaccine for children. Not when we have the option of a Pfizer vaccine. So um, that risk is not here for us. The... Yeah, uh, the the vipid thing, the blood clot thing is uh, it's controversial and um Yeah, I hope uh Sam just let me know if you still have his audio. I'm hoping to keep Doc, you can hear me still? I think I can. Yeah, yeah sorry. Great. I didn't come and call. I had to no. cancel it. <laughs> oh, no, that's great. Hey, do you do you have to run? I want two more minutes with you. No, I no, can't. I'm fine. Okay. Uh we we do have a, we have an appointment. We're going to be talking about innovation here, a round table to come. We'll start that in just a couple of moments. Uh we're hanging out with Dr. Raywat Dionandan out of the University of Ottawa, an epidemiologist. Uh you you talked well, now I'm just showing off because you told me I'm pronouncing it okay. <laughs> so now I'm going to say it like six times. Um can can I ask you you you, you talked about the difference between did you say elimination and eradication? Um yeah. you you said we were able to eradicate smallpox, uh, but you don't think we're going to be able to do that with COVID. Why is it? Is it vaccine hesitance? No, it's not. It's a number of reasons. Uh, One, the smallpox vaccine is really good. I mean, it's almost 100% protection. Number two, lifetime immunity. You don't need to have booster shots. Mm. Number three, uh, well proven amongst children. Number four, if you recover from the disease, you've got uh, lifetime immunity as well. Number five, if you've got smallpox, there's a a rash and a scar left over. So you can prove, hey, I had smallpox, I'm immune. And the most important one, number six, is smallpox really only lives in human beings. COVID bounces back and forth between humans, bats, dogs, apes. And so if we have to eradicate in humans, we have to eradicate it in those other species as well, which seems pretty unlikely. So uh, I don't, if I was a betting man, I'd say I would bet against eradication for COVID, but it might go away on its own via mutation. So that's another possibility. Okay. Can, can I put a couple of questions in front of you, kind of rapid fire sure. format? There's one here from Jen who says a lot of people I'm talking to are worried there are long-term impacts of a vaccine and we just don't know them yet. Uh, could the doctor touch on that? Is there a long-term risk to vaccines? There's always a long-term risk for anything. Um, the the pushback against that would be most of the time, any safety signal we see within the first three months or the first three million doses, and we're past that now. The other thing is, one way to get around not having enough time to look at something is look at large numbers of things right now. We have tens of millions of doses to look at now, and so far it looks all right. Now, COVID as well has a long-term consequence. So that's the balancing act. Long-term 
detriment of the vaccine versus long-term detriment of COVID. We know this one is real for sure. Um, I've got a couple of uh, audience members on, on Twitter and otherwise asking if, if if we've already had COVID, do we still need to get the vaccine? You probably don't need to. A recovery does confer immunity, but a vaccine immunity is more stable and calibrated, whereas natural recovery, we don't really know what your antibody production was. It doesn't hurt you to get vaccinated. In fact, it can give you a better response than someone who didn't recover from COVID. So I'd recommend getting the, uh, the vaccine anyway. And what is it about Australia and New Zealand, by the way, is, is just the fact that, that they're relatively speaking isolated, that they have the luxury of, of being islands? Is, is that it or is there something else that they did right? I'm sure that's part of it. But uh, looking around the world, the places that did this right had three things in common. Number one, they acted early. They acted hard. Number two, they got really good at case detection with good testing and tracing. Number three, they closed their borders early and, re- and did not pr- uh, allow imported infection. And they continue to do that uh, really well. So being an island helps, but an island is a conceptual thing. We can be an island if we want, if we shut our borders. Doc, uh, we've got Chad watching in live on YouTube this morning. He says, hey, it's our baby's one year birthday today, too. Congratulations to the good right doctor on. and his family. We're going to let you get back to your family, get to the party. It looks to me like you might be at work. Either way, we appreciate your time, Doc. Thank you very much. You got it. That's oh, wait, hang on a second. No, wait, wait, don't go anywhere. I wanted to read one more thing. There's a note here. Where is it? I have to find it quickly. A listener. I might have to sum it up. Uh, I might have to say what the listener said in my own memory, but she basically said I've been here. It is from Michelle. You need to hear this. I'm glad we didn't cut you off. Michelle says I have followed this doctor, this epidemiologist through this entire pandemic. His calm demeanor and his knowledge has helped me tremendously. I wanted you to hear that. I want to cry. There you go, Doc. Have a great weekend. (laughs) Thanks very much. That's Dr. Ray Watt, Dionand, and and thanks, Sam. I made you double clutch on the cutoff there. (laughs) Now, Sam, behind the scenes, now Sam starts lining up our roundtable. We got an innovation roundtable to come. That in just a moment uh, as as we take a deeper dive into uh, some of the stories where where Edmontonians, where Albertans are doing remarkable things uh, in, in some circumstances being noticed across Canada and around the world in the context of innovation. We're going to get that going in just a moment. This is a great time to remind you that if your weekend includes grocery shopping, you're going to want to check out Friesen Brothers, if at all possible, 15 locations across the province of Alberta, where they have been proudly operating for more than 65 years. And their commitment to buying, supporting and selling local is evident everywhere you look whether it's their proteins the beef pork chicken turkey whether it's the tofu that they have on display some great vegetarian and vegan options i probably could have indicated that a little more strongly after our our ethics of eating round table yesterday that's one of the things i really noticed about the new friesen brothers in south edmonton their rabbit hill location uh, the the options and the clear communication on the options, you know what I'm talking about if you've been there. For those that do not eat meat, excellent. They've got Alberta honey on display. They've, they've got their famous sourdough made with their Alberta milled flour. You getting the point? So Friesen Brothers is where you're going to want to swing on by if you're grocery shopping this weekend. Again, 15 locations across the province of Alberta. Our team, our friends at Kubi Energy 
are back at it. Jake, the CEO there, the founder, was telling me they've never been so busy installing solar in residential, commercial, and industrial applications in BC and Alberta. The team is constantly growing, and it's no wonder why. The science is getting better. The cost is dropping. If you have questions on how you might be more sustainable in your energy consumption, maybe save a few bucks along the way, get in touch with Jake and his team at Kubi Energy. .ca. Also, a big shout out to the team at Alta Moving and Storage. If this summer means a move for you, we're paying attention to some of the real estate trends across Canada. I think I can say with confidence some of you are moving this summer. I mean, it's just deductive reasoning. Big words for a radio guy. You're going to want to look up altastorage.ca. They're the movers that understand some of the stresses that come along with the process, and they built their business around decreasing that stress. They drop off these pod-style moving containers at your house you load them up at your leisure they move them for you you unload them yeah yeah at your leisure no swess that was sweaty stress i love that swess it's like swass which nobody wants swess is a little more polite but still nobody wants it i wonder if they're going to come up billboards like eliminate the swess with alta moving in storage You know, at some point, our partners are going to start calling us and saying, would you mind not like cooking up your own slogans for our companies? We've spent thousands of dollars on branding. Would you mind just sticking to our branding? You can find them at altastorage.ca. I'm just going to say something straight up. Okay, I'm going to say this straight on. This is going to look very self-congratulatory in just a moment. Okay, because we're thrilled this show to be featured on the cover of this month's Edify magazine we're thrilled most especially because it's the innovation issue and we hope that you've had a chance to read the feature on real talk in my personal journey at edifyedmonton.com but here's the thing this round table coming up it's not because i'm on the cover and i'm not coming i'm not on the cover because we have this round table coming up i got my hands on the issue and we started diving into it and we realized the stories they were telling were a perfect fit for this platform they're celebrating innovators across this region that are making huge contributions in many different fields. And we thought we have to focus in on this. So we're really proud to be partnering with the team at Edify today on innovation. The question is how, and it's a real pleasure to introduce three of the stars of this innovation issue. Christina Milkey is helping unite Edmonton innovators with investment. She's at the head of the Sprout Fund. She's the president of VA Angels. Don't worry, everybody. We're going to learn way more about all this stuff. She's shaking her head, which looks like maybe I have bad information in front of me. I don't know. She's the chair of the Threshold Impact Venture Mentoring Service at the U of A. Unites entrepreneurs with personalized advice from industry experts. Uh, Dr. Mark Curiel is an emergency room physician. Uh, I can hear the, the the standing ovation coming from thousands of households right now just based on that alone. He's a clinical lecturer at the University of Alberta, and he's the co-founder of Mock. 32, which is a company offering innovative solutions to life-saving scenarios. We're going to find out how pitching a tent has had a huge impact on COVID-19 problem solving. That's coming up in just a moment. And Catherine Warren making her return to Real Talk, which we're really excited about. Catherine is the CEO of the newly reorganized Innovate Edmonton. That was carved out of the Edmonton Economic Development Corporation. Um, she's been set up with an independent board and a budget, and we're going to talk about innovation when it comes to drawing investment and the economy which is all over people's radar to the three of you welcome i'm excited about this conversation christina let me start with you uh 
How did I blow it in your intro? What's inaccurate? Let's just get right into it. You've got two out of the three things correct. So I am the chair of the Venture Mentoring Services um, Board and one of the founding mentors. And I'm also uh, one of the partners in Sprout Fund. Okay, perfect. So when it it comes to innovation, I mean, we're going to get into some of the specifics, uh, some of the brass tacks. but, But let me ask you just straight up. When you're recognized and celebrated as an innovator, uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I mean, is this, is this par for the course for you? Is this what you've been doing your whole career? No, it's not what I've been doing my whole career. I'm actually an accountant. <laughs> so I spent the good um, first part of my career being, being an accountant, but realized how much uh, I like the innovation space after I uh, found myself running the finance team at Intuit Canada. So that really um, got me excited about innovation. And from there, I went to Investopedia and after that, uh, I decided I really love this space. So I spend a lot of time now in the, particularly in the Edmonton and Alberta ecosystem, doing a lot of mentoring and coaching with um, some of the innovators and then um, started a fund a few years ago with some of my partners. And we're just launching our second fund right now. What's so different about what you're doing? Compared to who? You tell me. I mean, <laughs> um, well, I think there's a lot of people in our ecosystem here that uh, help companies. And so, um, you know, for a lot of founders um, who are experiencing some challenges, which they all do, my advice to them is always, well, ask people who you would love to chat with. And most people in the, in the, in the innovation ecosystem are very generous with their time and happy to help. And so uh, I am one of those people as there's many others like me. And so anytime people are looking for advice or help, there's a lot of different programs that they can go to or just generally one-on-one meetings that they can reach out to people to get some um, sounding board advice, uh, some mentoring, some coaching, um, and potentially investment as well. Doctor, I was, I'm reading your your piece, uh, your feature in Edify, and, and it starts, I mean, any great writer accomplishes this it's a great piece but it starts very dramatic right right out of the gates we're, we're taken into the er at the misericordia hospital and you have a close call with a patient that is clinging to life can you take our audience into that er uh i i would if i could but because of covid rules i'm not allowed <laughs> to take anybody into the er right now yeah no um it, it's been an interesting journey absolutely over the last 14, 15 months of figuring out what the heck we're dealing with with COVID and adapting our strategies and our manpower and and just figuring out what is this disease and how do we deal with it. Um, Right early on in in the pandemic, though, there was a big gap in knowledge, which created a big area of of uncertainty and fear and worry. And um, I was I was intubating my first patient since we had COVID in Canada, um, crashing pneumonia patient who was on as much oxygen as possible. They were still desatting, their, their oxygen saturation was really low. They were starting to tire out, their muscles were working as hard as they could. And, and in that situation, the only thing you can do is, is start breathing for the patient, right? You need to put a, a breathing tube in. You probably chatted about this a bunch with Darren Markland a couple of days ago. Um, but that's a scary procedure because you're turning off the person's ability to breathe for themselves and you are taking over. You're, you're putting a breathing tube in and, and attaching them to a machine. Um, we know when you do those procedures, you generate pressure in a patient's airways. That pressure can aerosolize viruses and bacteria. That aerosol spreads throughout the room and without knowing it, you can be inhaling pathogens and getting sick. We, we weren't sure 
if this is something that happens uh, easily or not. We were wearing masks that were supposed to shield our face from, from these aerosols. And uh, I was looking a little scruffy, Ryan, like you do. And, and the mask didn't fit very well. Uh, so the entire time I'm intubating the patient who is clinging to life, as you say, I'm thinking, what am I bringing home to my two-year-old and my wife right now? Yeah. What, what happens if I pop positive for COVID? Is, is Lisa, so my, my partner, going to be caring for our children all by herself for the next 14 days? Am I sleeping in a cot in the garage? Where, where do we go from here? Um, and that, that just spiraled and it got to a point where I said, how do we, how do we prevent that exposure from even happening? Right. Why, why just rely on one line of defense to protect our frontline staff and our frontline workers when we can add another layer of protection and, and keep that pathogen away from, from the worker in the first place. So that's, that's where the idea for, uh, for our tent came from. Okay. So you create what you describe as a virus vacuum, um, which I don't, I, it, it's kind of funny when you talk to folks like these three, or you look through this issue and, and you, you realize you're talking to innovators and everyone here, I guarantee the three of you are going to kind of shrug off what you do and be like, oh, I saw this. So I just did this, but, but no, you like created medical, you, you designed and built medical technology, which is being utilized in the course of a pandemic. Was this in partnership with your buddy, Chris at Mach yeah. 32? So what's, what's the relationship there? How did this come about? At what point did you say, I have an idea. I think we can build this. Let's make it happen. Absolutely. Um, so my business partner, Chris Tariff, a uh, friend from high school, we've been hanging out and doing stupid things, going off jumps on GT snow racers since Attaboy. we were 12, 13 years old. Um, he just happens to be a mechanical engineer and a project manager uh, by trade on major, major industrial construction projects. Um, we accidentally founded a company two years ago and, and Christina, I'm, I'm going to give you a shout out now. This is a lot your fault. Um, really? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> so, so Chris and I, um, over some beers at OJ's a couple years ago, had an idea for a new way of delivering a blood clotting drug to help patients when they suffer a major trauma, car crash, our military, our first responders, RCMP who get injured in the line of duty. Um, and we're, we, we came up with an idea, we engineered it. We accidentally went to a Valhalla Angels boot camp through Tech Edmonton, Christina nice. was presenting there. And all of a sudden we're accidental entrepreneurs, right? We, we just thought, let's find someone to give us some money to build a device and then we'll sell it, we'll be done. Um, and that's actually sprouted up to become a, a full-fledged company now with seven employees, which is, unbelievable because that's never at all what I trained to do or thought I would do. I I've, I've completely gone off the rails. That wasn't the question. Was it? Uh, it doesn't matter. Cause we have an hour to basically talk about whatever we want to and to inspire people. And I'm just going to pick your brains and uh, I could listen to an ER doc, talk about medical innovation and designing uh, technology with engineers around COVID-19 for a, a full day. So uh, you feel free to run your mind. I could I could talk about pitch and tents and, and sweats all day as well. So I think we got a lot in common there. Okay, good. We're getting along just fine here, Doctor uh, Catherine. Let me ask you: you're, you 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 come to Edmonton, um, or you're on your way to Edmonton anyway to to, to take on this new role out of. Uh, a role, a pretty prominent one in Western Canada as CEO of Vancouver Economic Commission. Under your leadership, they brought in $3 billion in investment over your two-year tenure. And if you look at the track record of where the investment was coming from, or maybe more notably where it was going, uh, 
you focused on emerging sectors, right? Green, sustainable tech, high-tech infrastructure, AI, 5G, uh, entertainment, impact businesses with social purpose. I mean, these are all things that for, for a lot of people are kind of buzzwords that maybe we have an entry level of understanding around. We hear experts and economists telling us that this is where the economies need to go. This is where people's careers should evolve. But this is something that you've been doing so how important is the word innovation to you when it comes to attracting investment and how have you done it? Innovation is critical um, in that mix of attracting investment for sure. Um, you know, at Innovate Edmonton, our role is to help innovators become game changers. So that means growth um, and scale. And, um, you know, when I think about innovation and what that means to me, it's very much an attitude. Um, it's always focused on new and better outcomes uh, for people, for economic growth, of course, and then hopefully for the planet as well. And so um, my approach to the combination of innovation ecosystems building and economic development is to draw together um, all of those cornerstones of excellence to identify Edmonton's real strengths and then map those to the great global challenges. Um, of course, those being um, climate emergency and the energy transition, uh, feeding the world and agriculture, as well as um, smart transportation corridors that are necessary um, for food delivery. Um, and then we can also think about um, some other things where Edmonton really has uh, tremendous uh, deep roots, AI, uh, machine learning, and other areas of excellence. So um, positioning all of that together as Edmonton's value proposition, uh, we have what the world needs and the world needs more Edmonton right now. So you're we're talking about Edmonton. Um, I, I, you know, if we could sort of extrapolate a perspective, if we could talk about Alberta or Western Canada or the country and in the context of innovation, you can't roll into Edmonton with what worked in Vancouver and superimpose it. Right. I mean, I don't need to tell you or anybody on this panel or anybody hearing this interview, you know, for example, that that, you know, there, there's some pushback, whether, whether it's subtle or otherwise, there's pushback in jurisdictions that have had traditional economic like I'm talking traditional, like, uh, you know, oil and gas, for example. Um, we understand where the world is going with sustainable and green energy. We understand where investments going. We see the trends all over the place. But there's still this, whether it's subtle or overt, there's a certain hesitance do, do you pick up on that? And if so, how do you innovate in a city like Edmonton versus what worked in Vancouver? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, of course, I am a Western Canadian. That means I come from a resource economy. So I very much understand that. And that was, um, uh, you know, a large part of the conversation and the leadership that um, we had to bring at Vancouver Economic Commission as well. So I'm I'm very familiar with those challenges and I see Edmonton as this target rich environment for innovation. There are tremendous um, contemporary innovators um, that are, are tackling these problems. 
We need to make sure that the global market understands what Edmonton has to offer, um, that capital can land in Edmonton. And hey, you know what? You can even invest in your own backyard. So, um, you know, I see Edmonton as this massive, mutually supportive city. Um, it's very community oriented. And, you know, we now have like a gang of people that are working for the win. And of course, you know, Christina's fund is part of this. Mark as an innovator is part of this. And our role at Innovate Edmonton is drawing all parties together and then working with others like Edmonton Global to take Edmonton to the world. Um, Christina, when you your your piece uh, in Edify, uh, I think it was Stephen Sandor that interviewed you, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, Stephen does a great. He's a great writer. Um, you told him uh, that a big part about what you're doing with this this venture mentoring service, you say it's about the growth and development of the entrepreneur as opposed to the growth and development of the business. And, and somebody might read that and go, okay, yeah, but but what does that actually mean? Yeah, so our success metric is never tied to the business and the profitability or growth of the business. It's always uh, on uh, what the mentee or the entrepreneur in our program is getting from the program. And an example of that could be uh, a, a founder comes in, they get accepted into the program, and they sometimes, um, in the, they come at various stages of businesses. We're not, um, we're agnostic to the, to the age or cycle of the business. Um, and so they could be a fairly new company. And if the entrepreneur is really struggling potentially um, to get good product market fit and have come to the conclusion in the program that they don't have a viable path forward for their business and have to come to the hard decision to shut down their business, um, we would consider that a success in our program because we know we've helped that entrepreneur go through a lot of difficult decision making. Um, and that that entrepreneur will likely come back and start another company in their future and will be a stronger, better entrepreneur in our ecosystem. So there's, I mean, men, there's nothing to do about mentorship, right? Uh, well, it's pretty specific mentorship. Yeah, right? I know. But I'm just saying, like, with regards to, to mentorship, the, the premise of it or the concept of it, it's, it's been around for ages in, in many different contexts. How do you see it evolving like what are what are what have mentors changed with regards to what drives them or their perspective and and with regards what do you call them mentees uh the people that are being mentored um what are they bringing something different to the table or is there an evolution there that you've noticed so so to get into the program um you don't just put your hand up and you get in there's criteria to get through and and a big one is your ability your coachability um, if you're not open to um, get, you know, having alternative views or alternative conversations, um, you're likely not going to be a good candidate for the program. And it's the same for the mentors. Um, the only way to come into our program is through a referral from another mentor. And there's a vetting process as well. So right now we have about 115 mentors, uh, primarily that are U of A uh, alumni. And they come from a variety of business type backgrounds. And so um, the important thing is that um, as a mentor in our program, we don't advise and we don't consult. And there's, you know, there's uh, a conflict of interest uh, rules in there. You can't invest in the companies. You can't benefit from the companies in any way, shape or form, which keeps the mentors very focused on um, helping the entrepreneurs um, for the for their own growth as opposed to again the business and so we ask a lot of questions in our mentoring style we don't 
tell the entrepreneurs what to do. Um, we may share stories of our own experiences, but it's always about asking questions because at the end of the day, those founders are the ones that have to make the decisions for themselves and live with them. So it's really important that they they get brought along so that they are able to make those decisions for themselves. Uh, we're talking to three of the innovators that are featured in the May edition of Edify. Uh, you can read this online. It's, it's some great features, edifyedmonton.com. We talked to Dr. Darren Markland earlier. There's, I mean, there's just so many stories in there in the restaurant industry. I mean, in, in so many different contexts, uh, this conversation is presented, of course, by Edify Edmonton and the team at Alberta Innovates, uh, CPA, that's the Certified Professional Accountants of Alberta, Innovate Edmonton, Health City, Amy, which is the Artificial Machine intelligence institute and dynalife medical labs also want to give a shout out to the teams that support us each and every day here that includes the team at northwest fest we want to remind you that northwestfest.ca is where you can get your tickets for the first ever online on demand only edition of canada's longest running independent documentary film festival it runs through till may 16th which means you have until the end of this weekend to take in more than 40 feature films plus 40 shorter films. Many of them, these are global premieres. Some fascinating films, including White Noise. We talked to the filmmaker there. What about Vinyl Nation? The Resurgence of Records. We talked to those filmmakers last week. You can find those interviews anywhere you download your podcast. Just look for Real Talk Ryan Jesperson, or of course, on our YouTube page. And make sure you check out the lineup. The beautiful thing about it, you don't have to be there at the cinema Tuesday at 7 o'clock, the only time you can see a certain film screened. No, it is online when and where you need it, regardless of where you are. Tickets are on sale right now, and you can check them out again at northwestfest.ca. A shout out to the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. There's six locations, family owned by friends of this show, Mark, Michelle, and Michael. And because they love Real Talk Nation, they're offering up right now the Peanut Buster Parfait for just $1.99. It is an earth-shattering, shocking price. $1.99 for the Peanut Buster Parfait that's typically, I think, around 6 bucks. Yeah, that's right. They're making waves across Western Canada with their price points available only to those that mention Real Talk or drop my name, Jespo, at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. We're hanging out with Christina Milkey, Dr. Mark Curiel, and Catherine Warren, all featured in the May edition of edify the innovation issue this roundtable innovation the question is how so doc you come up with this idea you and your pal uh, the guys that used to jump gt snow racers are now doing things that are going to save people's lives uh, which is a, I'm, I'm sort of seeing like some sort of a cool movie happening here uh, do you see a day where as a medical innovator you end up going into things like okay first of all what does the mug say you keep are you trying to compete with my mug I'm here not, the, i'm not i'm it, just, it, I just what is love this? my coffee lift where, it where lift it up what is it is there a hashtag what's the hashtag uh, lodge, lodge life are you at a lodge uh, right now no island lake lodge tell us about it oh man it, when when bc lets us travel again um definitely definitely one of the first stops you should hit on your way through to the interior stop in fernie check out everything fernie has to offer great mountain biking great hiking i should be getting some uh payback here from them you should and, well and me too you know, yeah exactly no the um 
Uh, favorite thing in life ever is probably skiing. And, and when, uh, when you got a one-year-old, a three-year-old and two full-time jobs, you don't get to go very often. So when you get to go, you buy a mug. I love it. Well, maybe, maybe you and I could both be, you just, I just see, you just have a great coffee going. Obviously I just, you, you keep doing it. Oh. But, but what I'm doing right here is subtly reminding people that, Oh, you're, Oh, you got like I'm a ready. really great coffee. I'm ready. I don't want to say that ours is coming through some lousy machine, but it is uh, what I'm doing is just shamelessly promoting that our real talk merchandise is available to the public to Tomorrow morning at eight o'clock mountain time at ryanjesperson.com. That's what I'm doing. Uh, but do you see it? Do you see a day where, where you're out of the R? Do you, do you see a day where you're the, the, the CEO or the lead designer of a, of a medical tech company and that's where you're feeling pulled? Is that where innovation might take you? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more and more and more spending time on the company every day, um, going to bed, waking up, doing emails at 3 a.m. And, and Christine, again, this is, you warn me that this is going to happen and, and it's happening. Um, now, in the life of an eMERGE doc, doing emails at 3 a.m. is not that uncommon because we're flopped back and forth all the time. But this is, this is not due to a shift. Um, I will move to the area that I can best support. So, so what does that mean? I would rather be the founder of a company that succeeds and not the CEO than the CEO of a company that fails because I don't have the tools to make it go where it needs to go. Um, this is where places like VMS and, and Innovate Edmonton come in, you know, hopefully giving me the, the post degree MBA that's not really a degree that gives me the tools to become that full-time CEO. So if it is a possibility that makes sense for the company and uh, still puts food on the table and lets me pay off my mortgage, yeah, that's that's definitely on the table. Catherine, do you do you, do you hear stories like this? All I mean, it's it's really interesting, isn't it, to hear the the doctor's perspective on on the importance of leadership and innovation, how it fits in, and and then Christina's sort of clarifying to us on the the, the development of the entrepreneur as opposed to the development of the health of the business. I mean, how much of this fits into to the perspective that you're bringing to your new role, and ultimately, let's be honest, to the economic health of a region? It it's bang on. It's absolutely. Um, what we hear time and time again. So, you know, innovators are looking for connection. They want a connected network, um, understanding that a rising tide lifts all boats. I think they're also looking for capital, so access to high value investment. And, and they want to participate in a community that has the courage of our convictions, because of course, um, innovation can be a long game. Uh, it's highly globally competitive. And so it's um, innovators like Mark and investors like Christina, who are very ambitious, that are, you know, logging the hours at 3 a.m. Um, that are really pulling together to put Edmonton's innovations on a global stage and to help with this economic diversification, Ryan. So, um, you know, of course, Technology is a critical piece of the innovation pie, but it's by no means the whole pie. Um, investors want to invest in all kinds of innovation and all kinds of high growth innovation. And I think Edmonton is really poised to deliver. It's really important that we do not leave money on the table. Um, we want to widen the net to include innovators of all stripes. Mark's an ideal example as a medical innovator. And we also want to appeal to investors of all interests. So that also includes 
social investors, uh, impact investors, because of course, these are high growth areas as well. And um, we, we can also bring in new kinds of investors through this approach and model. And this is not an approach that every city is poised to take. Are you concerned? You have to be concerned. How concerned are you uh, with with cuts to post-secondary, like big cuts, uh, drastic increases in tuition? I can see Christina nodding, too. I can't wait to hear both. All three of you chime in on this. Uh, the airport's losing direct flights. I mean, there, there's there's point after point after point that would lead people to believe that this is becoming less and less of an attractive destination for investment and for people, which is a huge concern. I'm going to ask all three of you this, but Catherine, why don't you go first? Well, I'd like to tackle that by saying um, we are seeing a great deal of uh, ecosystem investment in accelerators, which is very exciting. These are programs that offer coaching, mentorship and infrastructure for startups and scale ups. So Alberta Innovates has recently um, issued a request for proposals for these kinds of accelerators, both homegrown and global accelerators. And then our own city, the city of Edmonton, also contributed an additional $5 million to kind of sweeten that pot for these accelerants. And this will lead, um, you know, with all of us pulling together to 320 new tech companies, 7,200 new high value tech jobs, and 1.8 billion in high impact revenues for these companies all by 2030. Um, so while I absolutely agree that we must invest in our post-secondaries, we have to get the, um, you know, the uh, tra air traffic going back and forth. We have to reopen the economy and fire on all cylinders. There is a lot of attention to what startups and scale-ups need to succeed um, as part, of course, of COVID recovery, but also just for the long haul. Christina, it seemed the question seemed to resonate with you just based on your body language. How, how, yeah. how concerned are you about the things I mentioned? And I'm sure you have other examples, too. Yeah, so I, I'm more about, um, you know, we need talent. Talent's one of the really important ingredients to building a successful tech or business environment. And um, I also am a U of A alumni as well. I, uh, I feel like the cuts have become, you know, pretty large at this point. And, and you see the post-secondary institutions struggling to figure out ways to make this work for them. And when people decide on where they're going to move um, to a, a city for a job, one of the things they look at is the quality of life in those um, urban potential places that they're going to go to. And one of those things could be, is there good post-secondaries for their children to eventually go to? And so it's not just about developing talent that we have, but it's also about attracting talent to the region as well. And it, I want to, I'm, I'm concerned that we're not taking a long view on that as a province. Um, so although I strongly um, believe that we have some really awesome post-secondary institutions in our province, the U of, uh, U of C and the U of A both are ranked very highly, the ability to keep them as robust and as uh, at the top of those lists of great post-secondary institutions is really, really critical. Doc, are you, are you a grad from U of A med school? What's your alma mater? Yeah. Yeah, I did uh, undergrad medical school here, did my residency in Calgary. So I bounced back and forth between Edmonton and Calgary. 
And uh, with young kids, grandparents are, are a huge bonus. So we, we came back up. Um, and, and, you know, saying that, why did you come back to Edmonton? Oh, grandparents, right? It, it, it's exactly what you're talking about. There's a lot to Edmonton that is fantastic that I think doesn't get highlighted. And, and you know, if we're losing post-secondary, if we're losing flights, if we're losing a lot of things from our, our community, that can be concerning. I want to flip the script a little bit here, though. And, and since coming back to Edmonton, having done training elsewhere and seeing what we actually have at home, you know, I really am starting to understand those still in still in Yeg shirts that we're seeing around. Yeah, the reason people stay here because it actually is a fantastic city. It's a fantastic province. Um, and and what's the biggest thing that I found that has benefited our company about Edmonton? It's the fact that everyone that we reach out to, that we talk to, may not have done this before, may not have experience in medical devices, may not know exactly how to go about it but they're willing to take the risk and, and try you know working with oil and gas companies that are in a little bit of a slowdown and they have fabrication expertise to to help build a product that's completely outside of their regular realm 3d printing companies that have never done medical devices metal workers that have never done medical devices the list goes on of of all of the local industry that has ridiculous amounts of talent and it's focused in a different area, but, but there's this, let's get it done. Let's, let's figure it out. Can do attitude in Edmonton that I think, you know, really has driven our company forward and, and is one of the reasons why I'm proud to, to be, you know, founded and, and focused and based out of this city. I'm keeping an eye on our live chat here as we talk to our, our innovators, our innovation roundtable. Uh, unwarranted design says, uh, the United Conservative government killed so many economic diversification initiatives when they came in that had to bring some of them back once oil and gas tanked even further. Just a couple of comments later, James says, you know, one of the first big sins of this provincial government was to cut the payroll credit for tech and media startups in favor of tax cuts for big corporations. And it was a huge mistake. Uh, Catherine, what, what do you need from government? And let's talk about different levels. I mean, there, there's some funding there, obviously, but from, from a municipal or a provincial or a federal government, what sets the table, so to speak, from a government perspective for innovation to manifest in, in, in a place like Edmonton or across the province? Mm. You know, part of it is absolutely what government is signaling, where they put their money, the policies and the incentives that are in place. Um, we really do play a connector role, um, helping uh, companies to connect with government at all levels so that government can hear directly from um, our, our local community about what is needed. Um, you know, we at Innovate Edmonton, we have a, a big tent vision for what innovation is and what that can mean, um, specifically uh, with respect to diversification and diversity. Um, you know, I, I think um, we, we're at a critical time now where we also wanna bring back urban vitality, downtown vibrancy. And so um, at, at a municipal level, our city is doing a lot on that front and we're working with them on initiatives that will include innovation placemaking, um, attracting more people back to the downtown core, 
getting workers back um, kind of in-house so that uh, local uh, restaurants can come alive again. Um, there's that street traffic, working with downtown universities to, to add to that. So it's, it's not just what government can do, but it's what we can do um, with government and what we can do at street level to kind of re-engage around innovation and what that means in terms of uh, civic pride and identity, but also touching on Christina's point about talent. Um, talent is attracted to stuff that's going on and talent wants buzz. Talent doesn't just want great work. They also want great lifestyle and all of the things that that means, green spaces, parks, um, places for their one-year-old kids to grow up. And, um, we, you know, we want to work with government at all levels to make sure that we're re-injecting that vibrancy back into the city. Christina, we, we it's interesting, like when you talk to different entrepreneurs or, or, or business owners, people that have found success in, in, in their industries, um, you know, they'll note oftentimes the importance of government investment or effective policy. And then you talk to a lot of people that just say we just need government to get out of the way. How, how, how do you assess that relationship between entrepreneurs and innovators and government? What does a healthy relationship look like to you? Well, I just I would like to just add on to what Catherine's saying a little bit and, and acknowledge that our current provincial level government has come a long way from when they first come in to power around um, speaking broadly and positively about the tech ecosystem in Edmonton and in Alberta. And so um, they've also done some things like um, added additional funding to Alberta Enterprise Corp that is a funder of funds. And things like that, that really help um, the ecosystem in Alberta um, grow and develop. So that access to capital, get they got recapitalized with another $175 million. Um, they, if you follow any of, uh, especially, especially Minister Schweitzer on uh, Twitter, he often um, calls out uh, great news that's happening in the ecosystem in Alberta. And those things go a long way um, from helping the founders in our province feel some level of support from the provincial government. So they came in, they took away a bunch of stuff. Then they put together what was called the Investor Capital Working Group. And there's seven of us that were uh, asked to be on that group. And they asked for a report from us to give them um, recommendations for things that they could do to help the ecosystem. And um, thankfully they've now listened to several of them and implemented things like Invest Alberta as well, whose job it is to listen to the ecosystems from the various innovation groups in Alberta. And then on top of that, um, which Catherine mentioned as well, the RFP for accelerators that's coming out of Alberta Innovates, that organization is funded by the provincial government. And so they're, they're, one of their mandates is to help the ecosystem across Alberta um, from a variety of perspectives. But one of the ones that they're doing right now is helping to attract accelerators to Alberta and hopefully some strong name brands as well. Um, that will bring some very specific expertise. And so I, I just want to make sure that we're not, you know, kind of dumping on the provincial government. But but to your question, um, I think the government can do some things, but I also don't think that they should get too involved. Edmontonians and Albertans in general really do have that. We can just get this done kind of attitude. We're very gritty. Um, we're very much problem solvers. And um, I think if government's too involved, um, that takes away that grit or it softens us up too much. 
Yeah. We've so had, the, the go other ahead. thing that, um, oh, I was just going to say the other thing that government can do, and we have a huge advantage in Edmonton because we're also a capital city, um, both the province and the municipality can be a lab for pilot projects for local innovators to get their first big client. And this is critically important. Often um, uh, people who, who create new things have to go elsewhere to sell them. And I think we have a real opportunity working with um, uh, three levels of government and indeed First Nations treaty groups to um, bring these local innovations to bear on our own city to grow them out, make them robust, and then point to this as a way to commercialize them uh, internationally. And that's fair, Catherine, as long as those those levels of government don't make it too difficult to become a customer, because there's often a lot of challenges and red tape in their I, procurement process. I couldn't agree more with those last two statements. <laughs> um, I'm not going to delve in any deeper than that, but I, I completely agree with both things that were just said by by uh, by Catherine and Christina. Why don't um, you want to delve in any deeper? Pardon me? Why don't you want to delve in any deeper? Uh, I don't necessarily want to delve in any deeper in Alberta because I, I wear a lot of hats in this province right now. Um, I, I'm a assistant clinical professor with the university. I work as a physician for Alberta Health in Alberta Health Services and Covenant Health Facilities. I'm a founder and an inventor. And um, I think that, you know, people on this panel are, are saying wonderful things. And, and I don't, you know, with all these different hats, it's hard for me yeah. to objectively comment. Yeah, fair. You know, I, I find and, and Doc, you're, you know, yourself as, as you know, you've got you've developed this product, which obviously could have a, a ton of really incredible um, applications. We have uh, across the board here some really great experience on this panel. And I, I think of I don't know why I think EVs are popping into my mind as an example here. We know that electric vehicles are going to become more and more prominent. I often cite General Motors. I, I know that I could talk about Jaguar and Cadillac and, and uh, that's Jim. Anyway. You get what I'm saying. Mercedes Benz. I mean, all these car companies 15 years from now are, are, are barely going to do anything. They're barely going to release anything that's powered by fossil fuels. And I've seen a lot of people because I've hosted a lot of these conversations say, well, if EVs were so great um, or if hybrids back in the day were so great, they wouldn't need governments to come up with all these incentives and these rebates and these subsidies. Uh, people would just buy them and they should be able to survive on their own if they're so great. That That's like one example but I think that if you expanded that theory uh, or expanded the premise of it anyway, it goes to show that there is an ongoing conversation about the role that government plays, right, to either prop up and facilitate or to get out of the way, uh, maybe not entirely. And I'm always curious to pick people's brains on, on, on how that actually manifests itself, you know, maybe even yourself, doctor, with product development. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, support when support is needed and removing red tape when when that's the question is super important. Yeah. Um, and and I mean we have the benefit of being able to have gone cross Canada with our awesome sales and distribution team and our medical and Catalyst for Care, um, and and some of the areas that did this really well. Uh, are, are in Ontario. We, we get to deal directly with the end user who has a clinical problem. We show them the device, they look at it, they give us their feedback. And, and early on in our, our design development iterations, uh, Brockville in Ontario said, we like the device, we're concerned about this one component, can you change it? And, and gave us direct feedback that day. We took it to our engineering team 
changed it within a week we were back in front of them and and got you know through that ipnc pathway that needed to get done so having a quick you know agile group that can pivot is is important um but also having the large structure to support it is important and finding that balance is difficult can I can I hard swerve on something and, and ask you, I mean, when we're sort of as uh, I'm not saying you as a physician, but but members of the general public have been trying to get some understanding of the COVID-19 virus and, and kind of how it spreads. And you'll remember at the beginning, there was some some debate among prominent public health professionals about whether wearing masks was was, you know, beneficial or not. Um, it's still going. It, well, of it course, is it the is. Rhetoric, the rhetoric is just heating up. So can I can I ask you to chime in on this? Because I, I'm curious to know people talk about like the uh, the airborne or the, the aerosol element of this versus the, the contact or the, the droplet element of this. And this seems to be a big part of this debate. And it seems to me if I'm talking to a guy that's developed this tent um, and I don't ask you about this, it's a real missed opportunity. Can you give us your insight into that? I, I've drank the Kool-Aid. So, so I'm going to start there with my caveats that, that neither scientific position is completely supported. There's evidence for both and there's a lot of back and forth. Um, this is going to open up a can of worms that, you know, on, in the online debates, people are, are being called Nazis right now. Like one of the scientists who wanted to design a trial looking at different types of mask use in hospital for nurses was, was compared to Joseph Mangle. Right. right. We're experimenting on humans and we're killing them. Well, we're, we're trying to figure out best practices with a, with a you know, disease that's relatively unknown. Um, the science on airborne spread and on, on aerosolization of viral particles pre-COVID was, and pardon my French, it was crap. There's, there's not a lot of good, hard clinical science. There's, there's bench lab science where people simulate something in, in a laboratory and then they try and extrapolate it to real life and there's a big gap. So all of this research is actually coming out as we speak. And it's, it's based on observations right now because it's hard to do a giant clinical trial where, you know, how do we define standard of care? What are the differences? How do we blind people? How do we get enough people enrolled? Um, just talking about the vaccines recently, you, you have a nice, clean population that you say you got the vaccine, you didn't get the vaccine. Can you really say you wore the mask 100% of the time you didn't? So the data is hard to, to suss out. But we know that this virus spreads differently than what we've seen before, right? We're, we're distancing, we are wearing masks. Where did influenza go? It's, it's gone for the last year and a half. Where did most of our common cold viruses go? We're not seeing most of these respiratory pathogens that are classically spread through gobs of spit and snot, right? Contact and droplets. But we are still seeing significant spread of COVID. So if the, the measures that stop all these other viruses work for those other viruses, how is COVID different? That's, that's where this debate has started from. Why is it spreading? And, and one of the prominent theories is that you can aerosolize. So when you breathe really hard, when you cough, when you sneeze, you don't just have to have a goober fly out of my mouth and land in yours, which is disgusting, but it can be this fine little mist, like someone smoking a vape pen, right? You've, you've been around people with those vape pens that look like a semi-truck just did a burnout. Um, and it spreads 15 feet and all that you smell is uh, cherry vanilla Coke. And you're like, how does, how does that get over here. The same concept with, with this virus. Is it going into tiny, tiny little microscopic particles of water floating through the air? 
And we know that we're seeing people in indoor spaces with poor ventilation catching it more frequently. We know that we're seeing super spreader events where people who are singing or screaming or breathing really hard are spreading it. And, and we have benchtop scientific research that shows, you know, breathing as hard as you can creates aerosols. And we know the virus lives in aerosols and we know that the aerosols can remain airborne for several hours. So we have all these pieces of the puzzle that show that the, the virus is very likely spread in this manner. We just haven't proven it. And, and that's where the, the debate comes in. Well, show me for sure. Yeah. Right. And, and so, so people say where there's smoke, there's fire. How much smoke does it take before people look at the fire? That's my question. And this is, I mean, it's relevant, you know, I mean, obviously yourself as a physician and, and at high level people developing policy, medical officers of health, this type of thing, public health uh, professionals obviously need to have a very clear understanding of this. And then, but then at the, even at the layperson level, you put this, you put this into terms where, where people understand or, or care about, and it's like, Understanding this is when we can better understand when we can open patios and have rock concerts and music festivals and parents can be back in the stands watching their daughter play ringette or yelling at the kids baseball, like yelling positive encouragement at the kids at the kids (laughs) baseball game. But a better understanding of this allows for, you know, that so-called return to normalcy, so to speak. Absolutely. And, And, you know, I'm. I'm getting my kids outside as much as I can, you know, to the playground and, and my one-year-old's licking the, licking the handles and eating dirt. And I'm not really worried he's going to catch COVID from that because that's not how I feel. It's, it's primarily spread, right? I, I think that we really do need to see more research and, and understanding about the aerosolized component. Um, and to be honest, I'm a little surprised that we haven't seen some significant HVAC companies and, and you know, fan filter companies jumping on this and, and trying to carve out a niche for, for future uh, innovations as well. Yeah, me too. Uh, this big, sexy air purification units, like one of the first things that we lined up in our studio here. I'm serious because, I mean, this show launched right in the middle of a pandemic. Right. So um, that was sort of one of the things. But again, was it based on like my intricate? Uh, understanding of n- no but it was one of the things where we sort of understood that that was one of the basic steps we could take to try to create more of a safe workplace right um yeah more and more people doing it uh, Catherine, another hard swerve um the, the piece uh, the feature on you i love it it begins it, it takes us back to your days as a grad student at columbia university and and it goes in a direction where i i wouldn't have thought to ask you about the renaissance and and how the arts and music and the cre- you know creative expression ties into economic success and 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 how healthy arts means healthy economy and healthy economy means healthy arts and maybe the second one makes more sense than the first can you help us understand if we can do we apply that today i mean this is 300 400 years ago or does this still fit it absolutely fits um Innovation is an interdisciplinary experience. It relies on ideas from all corners to spark new inventions. And, um, you know, medicine is a perfect example. It is a bit art, a bit science, a bit tech. And so we're seeing it right here in everything that Mark has described. Um, You know, I. I think, um, again, we talked a bit about downtown revitalization and downtown universities really are that crucible where um, people uh, from all different disciplines rub shoulders, they share ideas, they have a beer together after class or after work, and then from that might spring 
our next great startup. And so, um, you know, the, the renaissance is alive and well, and it's alive and well right in our own city um, once we're able to get beyond our, our masks and, and back together again. I love it. I always when, when we have experts like this on a panel, I always try to wrap up the conversation with, you know, typically we say a call to action or, you know, ask you to give us something to think about through the day. And Christina, based on your expertise, I guarantee we'll have a, a bunch of, of young. It doesn't necessarily matter young, but people at a, at a point in their life where their entrepreneurial journey is 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 they, they feel set for launch or they've got a great idea and they don't know what to do with it. Or maybe they're languishing a little bit and, and, and they're not quite sure how to take things to the next level. Um, I'm going to ask you to go first. And I want to ask all three of you to, to give us something to think about, something to take away from this conversation on innovation and apply it to our own lives or our, or our own endeavors. Would you do us the honors first? Sure. Uh, I always like to say to um, the potential innovators or the ones that are thinking about doing is making making sure that you're solving a real problem. I see a lot of founders who um, who love the idea of becoming a very successful tech entrepreneur and they they really love their solution, but they haven't done enough work on figuring out what the real pain point or the problem is that they're solving. And and without that, um, and and having those potential customers that are willing to pay for their solution, um, they might not have a viable business opportunity. And the other thing I would like to do is a plug for my fund. We're in fund, we're fundraising for our second fund. And the other thing uh, we're trying to do with this fund is to turn traditional Alberta investors, people who have invested in the in the oil and gas and or real estate and, be, and, and help them transition into becoming tech um, investors. And so um, we're raising our second fund right now for anybody that's interested in getting involved in tech investing in Alberta or in Western Canada, actually. Very cool. Catherine, how about you? Uh, well, innovation is inside of all of us. It's innate. Uh, we need to really encourage it and not just in, in young people who have it, um, you know, all the time and everything they do and not squeeze it out of them. So encourage the inner innovator in us all at every stage, um, including if you're part of the just transition and you're transitioning from let's say a resource job to the knowledge economy or part of the energy transition. So really encouraging that um, as leaders, as employers, as investors, as mentors, as coaches to just um, remind people innovation is a strength. We have it inside us. Let's run with that. And then in terms of um, Innovate Edmonton, I would love to invite our listeners to consider uh, nominating themselves for our Innovation Growth Council um, until um, May 20th. You have the opportunity to throw your hat in the ring. And this Growth Council will advise me, advise our board of directors on all of the wonderful innovation opportunity that we have in our city across all different uh, sectors of innovation. Doc, we'll give you a last word on this. Just because you don't know what you're doing doesn't mean someone else does. So if you have an idea you believe in, right, we got a lot of good opportunities in Edmonton to help you get to where you want to go. Startup TNT, right, Innovate Edmonton, Alberta Innovates. There's, there's a list of groups you can reach out to that I didn't realize how much of business was when you could shake hands, shaking hands and then getting a card and finding someone else's name and then shaking hands. And eventually two months later, you find the right fit and, and you're off to the races. So putting yourself out there, believing in it and, and finding someone else who can help you do that work, I think is the biggest bits. 
Um, I'm, I'm going to piggyback a little bit on what Christina was saying about raising capital. Well, Mach 32 is starting to get ready for our second uh, capital raise. We, we have funded this with some government grants through Alberta Innovates and NRC IRAP, uh, bootstrapping and family and friends money. We are looking to go for our seed round. So if any interested investors are out there, we're going to be opening up a seed round in the next couple of months. Um, and, and a complete hard swerve, Ryan, because I'm, I'm following in what you're doing. I just wanted to do a little shout out to uh, all of the nurses that are working right now. Um, I know that it has been a really, really hard 16 months or so. Uh, I can't remember a shift in my last year where we've had a full complement of staff. The nurses are running their asses off, working shorthanded, coming in double shifts, 12, 14, 16 hours straight, and doing it while taking abuse from people who are tired of sitting and waiting in the waiting room, people who want that sandwich right now, and, and they're off saving lives. So it, it is nurses week right now. They work hard. Thank you. I'm so glad you said that. I had a an opportunity. It was my honor to to serve as a judge. Uh, first of all, for the 3MT competition at the University of Alberta, out of the Faculty of, of Graduate Studies and Research, 3MT is a three minute thesis competition where these graduate these people that are a million times smarter than me have three minutes to break down their 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 research their theory their their hypothesis and then and and then be able to communicate it to plebs to common folk and help us understand it and and that's that's a unique challenge in its own way i mean we could really tie this into innovation couldn't we i mean christina this is right in your wheelhouse oh oh, i've been a judge on that as well twice it's really hard it's really hard and and you know i mean you're you, you live this every single day someone can have someone can be absolutely brilliant but be terrible at communicating their brilliance right i mean these are two different things i'm a great communicator i am not brilliant so that's great i can make people think i'm way smarter than i am they're different skill sets the point is i then went on to judge the western canadian 3mt competition and there was one researcher in particular that was talking about the impact of 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 social uh malaise and abuse on nurses and on frontline healthcare workers she's doing an entire graduate study on it um and and i was so, i was just locked on that presentation and doctor i'm so glad you mentioned it because the people are actually studying this on the impact it's having on people and not just on nurses ability to show up for their next shift when i by show up i don't mean physically i mean to be there and to continue to give of themselves in such a, a thankless profession but also the impact that it has on things like retention nurses were telling this researcher some of them that they're not leaving mid-pandemic because they feel a call but when it's done they say we're gone we're out that's it and i think that messages like the one you've just put out on this platform are so very important um we've we've lost a lot of talent and it's going to keep happening it's uh people are at the end of what they can deal with yeah Good to see you. Edmonton mayoral candidate Cheryl Watson's been hanging out on our live chat. She says this is all about the problem you're working to solve. That's what it all comes down to. I've really enjoyed this innovation. The question is how our guests, Christina Milkey, Dr. Mark Curiel and Catherine Warren. Thanks for hanging out with us. Congratulations on the features. And it goes without saying, we'll be staying tuned to see what you continue to not just accomplish yourselves, but what you continue to foster and facilitate with other people. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Ryan. Again, I encourage you to, to, to check out uh, Edify Edmonton. Uh, the newest edition is uh, is is on shelves. Uh, you can find it on newsstands across the city if you're here in, in the metro Edmonton region. Of course, you can check them out at edifyedmonton.com. 
a nude on the front cover. Who would have thought the life of Ryan and our thanks for our three panelists joining us. We reached out. We said we want to talk about innovation. This is the type of thing that, that lights a fire under our audience. And it's been awesome. Have you been keeping it at the live chat? It's 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 like all over the map. They spent about 15 minutes talking about great coffee. I noticed because the doctor was showing off that 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 unity's got there. That That's for the folks that are like, I mean, that 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 you're a serious coffee drinker if you're making your coffee in that thing. I yeah absolutely I mean I've got my French press yes but that he just elevated it like yeah 500 degrees yeah all different I've got the, I've got the French press I've got the aero press Ooh. which is great great for backpacking yeah. well, that seemed to resonate with Sam have you ever used an aero press aero presses are also they're they're fantastic for loose leaf tea as well is that right oh yeah Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, French press like they're good for coffee, but if you that. want to do if you want to do a nice loose leaf tea and do a big pot of it, yeah, absolutely. Oh, a Sam. nice loose leaf tea. A nice Ooh. loose leaf Kelly tea. Kelly drinks exclusively loose leaf tea, so I mean, there's a lot of it in our house. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So she, she has a, a host of local tea suppliers that she's a big fan of. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, so if I were for for like the holidays to give you like a, a crate of like of like the bagged. Earl Grey tea that was like on sale for a dollar ninety nine at the, or it was at the dollar store that would not resonate. Well, like we have cases of that as a backup. Like our <laughs> house is not allowed to run out of tea. Don't worry, Kelly, we've got you covered. Yeah. But uh, uh-huh. you know the the preference is is loosely from the tea girl. Yeah, I, I love this from James who says, "Take the hint, Ryan. You need a coffee sponsor. Take the hint, James. That's exactly what I'm doing." How do you think we get all of our sponsors? I talk about things on the show and then they approach us and then we bring them on board. This is how it goes. Like the team at Athabasca University's Power Ed. This is online, on-demand learning. Just like Real Talk. Hey, whenever you've got a moment, you can access it. You can spend a couple of hours on it. I mean, there's a real synergy here. We're not talking about professional development that takes, you got to set aside three weeks or you've got to find two months where you can go off the grid and find somebody else to watch the kids or walk the dog while you plunt. No, we're talking in some cases, just a few hours to become certified in areas like digital wellness, or, or leadership or allyship and inclusion. What about AI and machine learning? I mean, you're looking to better yourself. Maybe, maybe you're looking to better equip yourself for a job hunt, or maybe you want to take your career to the next level. Why not check out powered.ca? They've launched this new micro course that we talked about a week ago today on Digital Wellness Day, Digital Wellness 101, optimizing your time and energy. Who couldn't benefit from that? Come on. I mean, seriously takes like two to three hours to complete you know the average person sarah i don't know if this resonated with you when we found out that the average person picks up their mobile device 58 times a day they sent us that information that was straight from the coursework in in talking about what does digital wellness mean and i actually thought for myself i'm like i actually think 58 times sounds a little low i agree i also agree really kind of grotesque uh, and i'm like yeah exactly there's a little bit of guilt shame remorse for perspective can you imagine if you had like a neighbor that checked their mailbox 58 times a day <laughs> you'd be like are you waiting for some, is there something are, are you is there something going on are you trying to send us a message you look at it, is it your birthday? You don't have any birthday cards? What is it? 58 times. Who needs to check their mailbox 58 times? 
powered.ca is where you can learn more about Digital Wellness 101 plus a lot of the other amazing courses as well. I want you to, 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 to either pick up your phone and punch in a new contact right now. Just trust me on this one or grab a pen and write this number down. It's, it's the number for Todd at Todd's Mechanical. Okay, because when something happens, when everything goes sideways, and, and, and like my buddy Chris had happen a while ago, when water starts to pour out of your brand new light fixtures in your ceiling of your kitchen, that's not a good thing. That's when you need Todd's Mechanical. And then you're going to be scrambling. And I mean, you can always go to ryanjesperson.com under the sponsors page. Todd's Mechanical at 780-499-7598 is Edmonton's most trusted plumber. Don't take my word for it. I mean, please do. But you can check out his online reviews as well. You can find him on Facebook. Read what his customers say. When people are in trouble, they need someone who knows what he's doing and someone they can trust. Give Todd's Mechanical a call at 780-499-7598. We're going to get serious for a second. If you've been paying attention to the news cycle, if you've been paying attention to what's going on on the West Bank, I don't have to tell you that it is an absolute disaster over there. It's one of the world's most densely populated areas, some two million people uh, covering a, a strip, the Gaza Strip, just 41 kilometers long at one point, uh, fewer than six kilometers across. And, and right now it's trouble. Right now, the death toll continues to rise as the conflict has erupted in a way that people have not seen for years. The violence is some of the worst in the history of this region. Palestinian protesters and Israeli police have been clashing on a daily basis in and around Jerusalem's old city. It's been the scene of violent confrontation uh, for more than a century. And of course, it's one of the more bitterly contested cities on earth. Now, the latest clashes began about a month ago. Um, and, and this was with an Israeli move to block some Palestinian gatherings at the beginning of the holy Muslim month of Ramadan. Uh, already a time of, of, of heightened religious sensitivities. And so then there's this plan, which I, I would imagine you've been reading about to a certain degree, to evict dozens of Palestinians from an East Jerusalem neighborhood. Well, that's when things really ramped up. So most recently, rockets uh, streaming out of Gaza, rockets out of Israel have been pounding this territory with airstrikes on a daily basis. Dozens of people have been killed, many of them Palestinian women and children, according to the health ministry. Israeli airstrikes have leveled two multi-story apartment towers in the Gaza Strip, as mentioned, where more than two million people live. So. What is the significance here? What does this mean for people living in this region? How are Palestinian Canadians responding? And what can the average citizen do about it? Musa Kaskas has been a friend of mine for quite some time. He's making his Real Talk debut, but he's appeared on, on radio before with me a number of times in his advocacy efforts with the Canada-Palestine Cultural Association. Uh, Dr. Mark Ayash is a professor at Mount Royal University down in Calgary. He's published several academic articles on the Palestinian-Israeli struggle. He's currently writing a book on settler colonial sovereignty in Palestine and Israel and regularly writes for Al Jazeera on the Palestinian struggle. Gentlemen, to the both of you, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Uh, Dr. Ash, why don't we Why don't we begin with you? And, and I want to ask you candidly, um, because I don't want to take it for granted, did my summary of events and the my synopsis of the reality 
reality right now in this region. Uh, did it meet your standards for accuracy? So first of all, thank you very much, Ryan, for hosting us uh, here today and bringing us on air to, to speak to to to, uh, to your audience. Um, through no fault of your own, to be honest, uh, there are some 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 serious flaws in that in that narrative, um, and it's mostly due to the fact that in Canada, in the U.S., in Europe. Um, the discourse, the, the way that people talk about this, what you get to hear about Palestine, Israel is not a neutral or objective account. Canada is a staunch strategic ally of Israel yeah. and more or less our government parrots Israeli uh, narratives and Israeli state narratives, uh, narratives that, by the way, get well, at least used to get much more uh, stringent critique within Israel than you will hear outside of Israel. So let me just, I'm not going to give a whole history lesson. I can't do that. We don't have time for that. But let me just kind of uh, explain it in simple terms to people. Uh, what really, how, how to explain and understand this, uh, the, these events that are happening today, because it is all in one long 120 some year old story. And uh, uh, it's not an ancient hatred. It's not a religious clash. It's not a cultural uh, a confrontation. This has its roots in a Zionist political project, the Zionist political ideology that was uh, uh, enacted in the early parts of the 1900s to create an exclusive Jewish state with exclusive Jewish sovereignty over a land that was already inhabited by Palestinians. So in order for that movement to achieve its dream of exclusive Jewish sovereignty, it had to dispossess, it had to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians off of that land that would become Israel. So the greatest amount of violence that we've ever seen in that region was 1948 by far, not, not what we're seeing today. Um, um, and in 1948, uh, approximately 800,000, 750,000 to 800,000 Palestinians were displaced uh, from their lands and homes and became what we know today as Palestinian refugees. They are still some of them living in refugee camps in Lebanon, in Jordan. Some of them are refugees in the Gaza Strip. Um, and and so, so that's the root of the problem, is the displacement of people from their land. It's ethnic cleansing. It's settler colonialism. Not that different from what happened here in Canada. There are, of course, some differences, and you, know, you can make those comparisons from a scholarly point, but the underlying foundation is very similar. So the reason why Sheikh Jarrah was very uh, 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 sort of, uh, uh, that was the source of the heightened uh, uh, intensity, not so much the month of Ramadan. Um, because it was once again, Palestinians are still, you know, continuing to be evicted, uh, forcefully removed from their homes um, and ethnically cleansed. Um, and, 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 you know, so there's a lot to talk about in terms of how Gaza came to be the largest, uh, uh, the world's largest open air prison and what have you. But all of those violences that you see, the power asymmetry, we're not talking about uh, uh, two sides in conflict with each other, two nations. They're, Palestinians have no state, they have no sovereignty, they have no army, they have no military. Um, uh, so th this is not an equal, you know, conflict, you know, your traditional kind of war. Um, so, so people need to, to always remind themselves of that basic reality when they're making sense of any of the violences that erupt uh, um, um, in, in Palestine, Israel. Musa, uh, first of all, doctor, 
thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful for that. That's why you're here. And, and I want you and I want both of you in, in, in the questions that I ask you to, to please feel free to confront the language, because I know that, that a lot of times some of the language that is used, I mean, we'll get messages from people that say this, this, this is this is the colonialism. This is people need to be changing when we're talking about conflict or when we're talking about war. Uh, these phrases don't fit. They're not accurate, but it's part of the pervasive public vernacular. <laughs> Musa, how much of this resonates with you, what the doctors just said? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a great summary that he gave. Thank you very much, Mark. I, I would go a step further and say, um, you know, the, the Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah specifically, these are not people that have been displaced once. A lot, of, All of them at least are refugees once. Most of them have been refugees twice and the third time. And now again, they're being kicked out of their home uh, for a third, sometimes a fourth time by like he said, Zionist colonial settlers who a lot of them have no tie to Israel. Uh, unfortunately, because of uh, Israel's laws, uh, right of return laws, uh, you know, someone who has Jewish heritage or even married into Jewish heritage now uh, from anywhere in the world can come and take the home of someone who's been there for generations and generations. And, uh, and the entire system, I mean, in the West Bank, uh, in East Jerusalem, it's an apartheid system. There's roads for Jews only roads, roads Palestinians, and even the roads the Palestinians do take, they get stopped at checkpoints on a daily basis. This is every day of their life. This is not something that's happening once or twice, you know, and um, it, it, there's a lot of provocation that goes on, you know, no one in the world would agree with someone coming into your house and saying, this is my house now, you know, especially if it's backed by a military, that's what makes it so scary. Like he said, Palestinians don't have a military, they don't have an army, um, but they're, they're being forced out of their homes by Zionist settlers that are backed completely by the military. It's, it's really, really unjust. And like I said, the, the closest thing to, to that I can see when I was last in the West Bank, it, it, looks, it looks and feels a lot like apartheid. Can 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 we expand on that, uh, Doctor? You're nodding. I can tell your body language is saying a lot here. But but let's expand on that. Would you like me to expand on apartheid? Please. Yes, absolutely. So you know, obviously, the the Human Rights uh, Watch report came out uh, a week or so ago. Time is 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 hard to keep a track. This week has been very difficult. Um, uh, and and if, you know, officially called Israeli policies apartheid policies and apartheid crimes of apartheid. Uh, Palestinians have been saying this for decades and decades and decades, but we're silenced, right? We don't get. We don't. Uh, we don't, our, our our story, the Palestinian story, never gets air. Uh, never never gets to be aired in in these American. And, and Canadian spaces in these European spaces, um, uh, but at any rate, we've been we've been calling it apartheid. We've been calling it settler colonialism and colonialism for decades and decades. And basically, in my view, the best way to understand the term apartheid is how a system of rule, a system of domination, decides who gets privileges and who doesn't on the basis of race and ethnicity, on the sole basis of race and ethnicity. And Israel has been operating and structured in that way from its very inception in 1948. Now, the, the fundamental foundation 
upon which you'll find that apartheid system of domination is settler colonialism. So that to me always remains the foundation of settler colonialism because the Israeli uh, Zionist uh, drive to create, again, and I ex emphasize exclusive Jewish sovereignty because I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I acknowledge that, that uh, uh, Jewish Israelis have a place uh, on this land to live and share it with others, but you have to share it with others. You can't claim exclusive sovereignty over it. So, so, but, but to create, that exclusive sovereignty you have to remove the people that live there uh you have to remove non-jews um and you can see in that map that you've shown and that you're showing um uh how much uh, land palestinians are restricted into more and more and it, probably the last one is a generous uh way of of of, of giving palestinian uh, territory there i mean th th they're they're, they're divided into, uh, uh, you know, basically very small areas um, that are not easily connected to one another. And, and, um, and, and there's, you know, again, that entrenched system of apartheid, that entrenched, entrenched system of racist uh, uh, laws and policies uh, is part and parcel of, of, of Israeli action and, and, and the Israeli state. And, and that's what needs to be named. That's what needs to be opposed. Um, th there's only one way to resolve this, and maybe I'm getting ahead here, but but I'll, I'll I'll flag it now. There's only one way to resolve this. We need to move beyond Zionist ideology. We need to move beyond this idea that there has to be exclusive Jewish sovereignty over historic Palestine. That is only a recipe for ethnic cleansing. That cannot happen without ethnic cleansing. So the world needs to know and hear that. And Palestinians are not going anywhere. We will not just be ethnically cleansed. I have so I, I feel like I need three hours with the two of you uh, because I have so many different angles on this. I mean, I, I want to ask you about sort of the influence that Christianity has on on political policy in 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 Canada and the United States and, and Great Britain and, and, and other countries, uh, in particular in Canada and the U.S. And I, I, I look to and this may be an abstract example, but maybe it's not. To, for example, the Dome of the Rock. And, and I know that that's been probably the most I don't mean to be glib about it but the most hotly contested piece of real estate in the world and 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 i remember growing up in a christian church hearing that you know the, the sort of the you know the geez here we go into it i mean you know sort of the 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 prognostication around revelation and the end times and christ's return to earth would would be all predicated on on the dome of the rock return to the church and 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 it's now there's a mosque and do you know what i mean like even as a child this stuff was on my radar and 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 we see that that, you know, whether it's like, you know, the Canadian government or the American government, whether it's President Donald Trump talking about the return of as Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Or, there, there's all of this. We stand with Israel. We see the flag. I mean, you know, nations say that all the time. I mean, how much of this is it comes down to sort of the influence of Christianity on Western cultures and. And, 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 and probably, to be honest, to, to invoke the phrase Islamophobia. Uh, Musa, you want to take that one on first? Uh, yeah, so I mean, we got to remember too that there's a lot of Palestinian Christians, and uh, it's not just the Muslims that are denied their rights. I mean, uh, a couple of Easter's ago and some Christmases ago, they denied uh, Palestinian Christians the right to go into Bethlehem and uh, other areas, other churches, because Israel's the only one that can give permits to Palestinians, whether you're Christian or Muslim. And, and oftentimes the Christians are denied the rights just as much as the Muslims are. Uh, and about the Al Aqsa compound, I mean, this was the holiest month 
possibly the holiest night of the year for Muslims. Uh, they're at a spiritual high. People are uh, mending their relationship with their creator. They're in a peace, uh, uh, state of peace and serenity. And then you have the Israeli forces banging through the doors, firing stun grenades, tear gas. People lost their vision. People lost limbs. All this before any fighting, any rockets were fired, anything. This is the root of the problem. They're doing this to all of the Palestinians, whether it's Muslims, Christians. Uh, I agree with Mark. This is not a religious war anymore in terms of the way Israel reacts. They don't really care. As long as for them, you have Jewish supremacy in the region, uh, a different set of laws or Zionist Jews versus everyone else. Again, by definition, apartheid. We're not the only ones saying this. Beth Salem, who's the, one of the major uh, human rights organizations uh, in Israel, released a, uh, uh, a report recently. Just the title of the report is A Regime of Jewish Supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is apartheid. Uh, that's the title of the report. So you can imagine what they're saying. Again, an Israeli human rights group. Um, so... Again, it's very hard to just go back to all these old tropes about, well, this is just about religion and they hate each other and this and that. That's not true. The the, the bottom line, like uh, Mr. I, Dr. Ayash said, is uh, it's ethnic cleansing by uh, settlers, colonial Zionist settlers. That's what's happening. Bottom line. Doctor, I want to I want to just um, I'm not going to have a question out of this. I, I just want to read a bunch of the comments that we're receiving and, and then you pick what you'd like to respond to. I, there's there's a theme here. And and I think these are important comments. Uzma um, hits me up on Twitter and says Canada must stand up for the Palestinian people. Canada must stand up to Israel. If we don't, we'll be standing with an oppressive occupation and no longer have the right to claim that we prioritize human rights. On our live chat, Kelly says Western powers started this problem. We need to own it and start working toward a solution. Uh, Kelly says our guilt from allowing the Holocaust to happen has created another humanitarian crisis. Reality Beckons says, can we also please speak about how the aggression right now is also so Netanyahu can win the next election? And Heidi says, sincere and honest question, is a two-state solution even possible? possible anymore i mean there's a lot there but how would you approach it i know there's there's a lot of good stuff and i'll try to actually touch on most of it and i want to start with going back to your point and you know there's a name in that in scholarship christian zionists and they're uh, uh they're the sort of some of the biggest supporters of of israel and a more aggressive ethnic cleansing by israel in the united states and you'll find them in canada as well and and they yeah, they operate on these uh, 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 you know, uh, you know, horrible, violent readings of of religion, of course. Um, um, uh, but fundamentally, again, to reiterate, it's not a religious conflict. Prior to Zionism, prior to the Zionist uh, uh, project, you found pretty good coexistence between Palestine, uh, sorry, uh, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian Palestinians, who all identified, by the way, as Palestinians. Um, uh, it wasn't perfect. I'm not trying to, to, to say that it was a perfect uh, coexistence and there were issues. But if you compare, let's say, the 1800s, the late 1800s, and how that was happening, uh, their, their coexistence was happening in the 1800s with today, 
it's it's the the, the compa- it's immeasurably better back then. Zionism is the cause of of of, of a lot of these frictions uh, that again are a result of ethnic cleansing and the displacement of people from the land. And in my view, uh, the two state solution is dead, has been dead for many years, and is now just a sort of tool that is used by international powers to make them seem as if they want peace and as if they're working towards something, but they're really not doing anything. I don't think there's anyone in the halls of power, uh, like in the United States, for example, who genuinely believes in private conversations that a two-state solution is around the corner. I really doubt that that exists. They all know that this is just providing cover and Israel is just going ahead with its long-term project of ethnic cleansing to create what they call a greater Israel, which is exclusive exclusive Jewish sovereignty over that entire map that you saw. And for some of the sort of extreme uh, religious groups, they actually go beyond that map altogether. They And they include places in uh, spaces in Jordan, Egypt, and Lebanon as well. Um, so, so to me, there is no state, two-state solution. Um, and it was never seriously ever pursued, by the way, not in the 1990s either. Um, that could be a show on its own. Um, so, so Western powers, you know, Zionism knew from the beginning that it could not enact this project without support of superpowers. So they were they used the British for help in the beginning, and now it's the United States. And for those powers, they view Israel as a strategic asset in their own colonial and imperial interests in the region. It's it's you know Biden said it a few decades ago before he knew that this was go that YouTube would would come to exist and people would share this on Twitter when he ran for president 25 years later or something. But he said if Israel didn't exist, America would have to invent it. Um, what he's saying there is that America needs its garrison settler colonial state that is, you know, tied to the hip with the United States to enable it to carry out its colonial and imperial interests in the region. Um, so it goes both, the, the, the strategic support goes, uh, moves both ways. And so, yes, the, the Canada, the U.S., they're all in, complicit and actively complicit in the uh, uh, coloni- settler colonization, in the ethnic cleansing, in the apartheid regimes in Palestine, Israel. So, Musa, so this, for, for the, the Canadians or the Americans that are going to hear this conversation, that are, they're trying to wrap their minds around what are going on, or, or even yourself, trying to wrap your mind around this i mean where do you go from here i know that that neither of you are in a position to simply say well there's nothing we can do about it uh but at the same time when the message seems to be that nothing really seems to change here and the solutions that people have been sort of having some optimism around aren't realistic or aren't going to happen uh musa so what now well, I mean, conversations like this are very important. Um, I agree with Dr. Ayash. We have to change the narrative. There's a lot wrong with the way that we discuss Palestine. Um, the other thing I think it's very important that we, uh, you know, for me, the last time I was in Palestine was 2008. And the closest thing, like I said, that I can, if I want to explain it to someone with a historical example, is South African apartheid. Um, for me, it's very similar. Um, we know, you know, Nelson Mandela was labeled a terrorist, thrown in jail. Um, he came out of jail, became the president, and, and almost single handed they won a Nobel Peace Prize. The man was apartheid more than anything else. And uh, and he said, you know, our uh, our freedom is not complete without or is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. So when people ask me, like, you know, it's so complicated, how can I understand it? Well, look at apartheid in South Africa. What stopped apartheid in South Africa? If there were sanctions, uh, divestment, um, uh, boycotts. Uh, these things are important. I think this is one way that 
uh, people all over the world can help out. Solidarity, support, have those conversations, but definitely stronger measures are needed. We need to sanction Israel, we need divestment, and we need boycotts of, uh, of Israel until they start acting according to uh, international law, because they seem to ignore all international laws and, uh, and get away with it with impunity. So uh, I think Palestinians are really fed up. Um, Another thing in the narrative where, you know, a lot of people try to tell Palestine, uh, they try to preach morality to them. And the Palestinians look at it like, uh, you know, you displace us from our homes. There's draconian laws against us. We're living in apartheid. And then when we somehow resist, the world has the the, the audacity to come and say to the Palestinians, no, you know, you should follow this. You know, all of a sudden the moral compass is with the West. They're frustrated. You know, we, we need to keep having these conversations. We need to change the narrative and we need to sanction boycott and divest Israel from Israel. This is an interesting question from Jenny. I love questions that that make some people uncomfortable and make us all think these are the best questions. Jenny says, I'm wondering why suddenly this week uh, we can acknowledge what's been happening in Palestine for decades without being silenced as anti-Semites. What changed? Like now, all of a sudden, we're woke to this? Dr. Ayash, what would you say to Jenny? I wish Jenny was right, but I still think we are being accused of that. Uh, I know many people, many Palestinians, certainly many supporters of Palestine on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TV are being called anti-Semites. We're, we're put on blacklists and websites that 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 uh, call us anti-Semites and terrorists. I, I wish she was correct, but I'm afraid that this is still happening. I'm afraid that we're still having a really, really hard time uh, getting this story, the, the, you know, the, the reality of what's actually happening on the ground out on mainstream media. Um, um, I think we would be, if this was happening on CBC, I think we would have been, cut, our mics were cut off a long time ago. Um, uh, so I, I wish Jenny was correct, but I don't think that that's happening. Uh, however, having said that, I do think that there is something happening in this moment where more people uh, on the ground, just regular, ordinary people are starting to see through those kinds of misdirectional statements that try to smear us to, 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 to move the conversation away from the reality of what's happening. So a lot of the Israeli state and Canadian state and the American state propaganda that is usually used to silence Palestinians, it's not, as, it's not working as well as it used to in the past in these sets of events. And I give all the credit to the Palestinian journalists and activists on the streets in Jerusalem, in Ramallah, in Gaza, in uh, uh, Haifa, everywhere across uh, Palestine, historic Palestine, um, uh, uh, who are bravely sharing with the world, putting their lives at risk. Um, uh, uh, one of the Maryam Barghouti tweeted earlier this morning, a bullet just went right by her shoulder as she's as she's doing that kind of work. Um, uh, um, so I think they've done an unbelievable job to break through uh, uh, that, that wall, that wall of silence that surrounds Palestine in Canada and in the US. And, and I will have to say this as well. Sadly, Canada's way behind the Americans. We, I know we always like to look down upon, upon them and, and say, oh, we're better at this and better than that. They've they've done a better, their media, their mainstream media has huge flaws still, but they've done a better job than ours. Um, Why do you think? Uh, what's, the, what's the difference there? It's, I mean, it's not all clear to me why people have conversations still about what, what's, what's happening. Um, 
I, I don't know, to be honest. I, I mean, I think I think scholars will be asking that questions, uh, that question for 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 a few more uh, years. Uh, uh, what is the difference there? But uh, like, Mark, maybe, do you, like, do you think yeah. like, for example, do you think do you think, uh, you know, sometimes this type of thing can come across as conspiratorial. But but uh, I, I've worked in big media. I've worked for the biggest media companies in the country. Um, and, and there is political influence. And there are uh, tr- essentially uh, what do I want to call them? Prescribed everything from, you know, political endorsements to content. That That's a fact. I have seen it. That is undeniable. Uh, people can disagree with me but i've been there and they probably haven't so do you think that this is um a result of the influence of of political or corporate pressure on canada's media giants or do you think it's something else you know what you have more expertise in that than i would what you said sounds about right to me i can tell you this um uh, uh, the the you know cbc let's call them uh, by name uh the cbc uh, i find their coverage of all international issues horrendous. Uh, uh, They more or less repeat the Canadian government's foreign policy position on whatever international issue they're covering. Um, I don't think we pay for the CBC to hear the government's uh, uh, positions parroted back at us. Uh, We want journalists who are independent of government. So, I I mean, I I, I do hope that that something comes out of this, honestly, and that that a serious look is is given to this issue. Um, I, I do believe that there are good journalists uh, working within these mainstream institutions uh, that are trying to change them. Uh, uh, but I think we need we need to all to speak up against it. I mean, last night, the CBC National uh, had a quote from an Israeli uh, who basically said uh, we should wipe Gaza off off the off the face of the earth, uh, advocating genocide. Um, and the framing into his quote was the look at the level of anger that that this person feels as a result of the fact that a rocket almost has hit his house and his next quote is wipe gaza off the face of the planet along with all of its people and nothing to follow up afterwards to call that a call to genocide uh that is entirely unacceptable to have that on cbc national um uh, and i've heard of other uh, uh, news organizations overseas as well doing something similar um so i, I think that's a big question and, and i think i think we need to be looking at it i think we need to be looking at it very, very closely um the, the reason i was smirking there i don't and, and sam just keep the camera on me but i i uh, i just i just have to say there we're talking about something absolutely absolutely serious I just have to say the CBC is literally in our studio right now filming a feature on this show and they're hearing everything. So it's great. So your message right. is going to go. Your message is going to go right back to the right. assignment desk. Um, and, right. But I just it's just kind of a funny coincidence. But obviously, right. I'm not, I'm not I, hiding I, my critique. I, no, so, yes. nor, nor should you. This isn't the type of show like we say where people show up to tipsy toe in the tulips. We show up to have real conversations about things that matter. And it's good if they make people uncomfortable. The mics don't get cut here except for remarkable circumstances so musa this this weekend you're planning um you're helping to plan the drive for palestine we've seen these in communities across canada um and and you're bringing one here in edmonton i know you're going to deflect the the praise i know there's a team of people that are working on this but this goes tomorrow this is saturday may 15th at 6 p.m uh, tell me about it for our local audience or people that may want to make the trip to participate 
Yeah, and uh, not to deflect, but yeah, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I'm helping with it, but it's, it was a group actually of uh, you know grassroots organizers, six or seven people that came together and said we need to do something. Um, the response has been absolutely phenomenal. Like we've, there's estimates we're going to have about a thousand people, um, and it doesn't seem exaggerated because in Calgary they had a similar out, uh, you know, turnout. Toronto's been doing it all over the world. They're doing it. I think. Um, you know, we're just we're going to follow all AHS requirements. People are staying in their vehicles. All we're doing is driving uh, in support of Palestine. Um, and, and, and I'll be clear that this is in solidarity for all of occupied Palestine, for all of the occupied people. Um, and anyone can come out. You don't have to be Palestinian or Muslim or Christian or anything like that. If you care, uh, you just have to be human. Like they say, if you care about uh, about oppressed people, then uh, then join join us on, on the drive. Musa, can we can you put it in plain language? What it would mean to you or to other Palestinian Canadians to see uh, is it weird to say non-Palestinians people people of other backgrounds what would it mean to see other people showing up for this yeah you know since I was a little kid I remember one of the first rallies I went to my dad took me to a rally and I remember everyone at that rally in favor of Palestine looked just like me uh, there was very little support. There's probably 12 or 13 of us there. Um, and, and again, like I said, everyone looks like, look just like me, um, was for, from where I'm from. Now it's so encouraging to see, we have, you know, people from the indigenous community, uh, Black Lives Matter community, uh, average ordinary Albertans, Canadians that just are, are interested in human rights. You know, the average Canadian is a really, really good person and has a great conscience. And I think these people are the people that want to come out. And it means a lot to people like me because I feel like for years and years, I've seen it one way and I've seen it so clearly and I'm baffled why people can't see it that way. And now people are starting to come around. And I, and I credit also, uh, like Dr. Ayash would say, really good, like he said, really good journalism, but also the fact that now it's a different world we live in. You know, you can we're seeing things from Gaza, from people's cell phones. Um, anyone can share this. It's getting a lot harder to hide the, atroci- the atrocities of Israel. Uh, the, the media is no longer filtered through one source anymore. Now anyone can film something and put it online. And now we're starting. And I think that's why public opinion is changing. We're, we're starting to see what's honestly happening on the ground. A perfect example is like the whole Sheikh Jarrah thing. We talked about how unjust it is and how it's pure Zionist settler colonial, colonial colonialism. Um, I remember early on, uh, an Israeli authority referred to it as a private real estate dispute. This is what would happen if we didn't have independent journalists, if we didn't have people on the ground. I mean, to call it a private um, uh, real estate dispute is just, it's disgusting, to be quite honest. Like you're kicking people out of their home, who you've already kicked out of their home once or twice. Uh, You're making them refugees. And there's just so much that's going on that's wrong, in my opinion. Uh, I get emotional about it because, like I said, most of my family is still there. I know a lot of Palestinians in the city are very, very emotional right now. A lot of non-Palestinians are very emotional right now. And I would encourage people to focus that energy, come out to the drive uh, on Saturday, and write to your, uh, you know, your politicians. Again, like I said, sanctions, demand sanctions, boycotts, divestment, everything we can do. Let's, let's, let's throw apartheid off of Palestine the same way they did in South Africa. Africa. Amelie on our live chat says, thank you for this. We're in full support. People are just saying this has been so informative. People are, are grateful that the two of you have given us your time Two beaver uh, says they're going to drive 400 kilometers to be there tomorrow. Um, 
you know, Claire says this is so important. Yumna says we stand with Palestine. Um, I mean, just, be, you know, TQ says we're going to be there for you. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And we're hearing from audience members as well uh, that are just saying how much it means to them personally. I'm assuming either they have Palestinian heritage or, or perhaps a Muslim background. I don't know. Uh, by the way, Musa, I appreciated you clarifying. You said this is you said there's Palestinian Christians as well. I appreciated that. That's something else that for me, I'm 44 and I've, I feel like I've know a relative amount of kind of what's going on but every single day i am reminded of how much i have to learn and that was a real reset for me right that this is this is not sort of zionist christianity or 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 you know you know simply jews v muslims that's not what this is necessarily all about and and dr ash as well with your clarification and, and that bit of a reality check there too i have learned so much it feels like as a matter of fact, almost the type of interview where I've spent so much time and energy trying to moderate this uh, that I might have to go back and watch it again uh, to, to really kind of double down on, on some of the things that you're sharing with us. So I, I'm really grateful um, that the both of you have joined us again. Here's the information uh, for tomorrow. We wanted to put that up. A couple audience members asking for the information, the car convoy. This is in the city of Edmonton. If you're local, uh, if you're listening on the podcast, it's it's Saturday, May 15th, 6 p.m. The car convoy starts at the Castle Downs YMCA, 6 p.m. on Saturday. It's the drive for Palestine. You can uh, find more. At, what is that? Free Palestine YEG on Instagram. Um, that's Musa Kaskas of the Canada Palestine Cultural Association. Dr. Mark Ayash, of, a professor of Mount Royal University. Um, I know I know that I think I'm a day late on this, but can I still wish you an Eid Mubarak? Sure. Thank you. I appreciate sure, it. Sure. Thank you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and Ryan, I just wanted to say before we go, I really appreciate you providing this platform because it's very, very important for, for, for us to a cause that we're so passionate about uh, to get a platform like yours. And I know we've been friends for a while now and you've always been more than fair and honest, even if we don't agree on everything, at least you give that honest platform for us to to share so i'm i'm eternally indebted to you i really appreciate it so thank you so much ryan you bet Musa. Same. thank you thank you very much and, and just very quickly don't feel powerless about this you can make change we just made the ndp and jock meet Singh say we need to sanction israel that took grassroots efforts that took a lot of organizing that took a lot of letter sending but it worked uh, so keep up the pressure. Don't feel powerless. If Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Jerusalem can get up and face militaries, knowing full well that they're probably not going to succeed, I think you can uh, do it uh, here, too, in Canada. OK, can I I know I was getting set to wrap, but you just brought it up. Can I can I can I say that in political conversations I've had mostly off air with people, people perceive that uh, I'm just going to speak frankly and plainly. People were going, I guess Jagmeet Singh doesn't want to win. Like, you know, I mean, right. I mean, it just reiterates the point you're making that when when the NDP were were debating this, let's say some people might say fighting over it within the party, people were saying, what the hell are they doing? This is a can of worms. Why are they doing this? Right. When when when, when did the NDP win before that? If you're going to lose anyway, let's go lose principle. <laughs> uh, when was the NDP the federal government it never happened yeah. I don't know what these people are talking about this is how we change that narrative and you know what Bernie Sanders almost won should have won the nomination for the Democratic Party on a very strong uh, 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 platform speaking for Palestinian rights including the threatening of sanctions against Israel and he almost was uh, uh, the, the presidential nominee he should have been uh, uh, so it's not impossible that's Dr. Mark Ayash, uh, Mount Royal University, Musa Kaskas, Canada Palestine Cultural Association. Thank you, fellas. Much appreciated. And thank you to our audience members. This has been just a uh, 
what do I say? I mean, just, I, I, you know, sometimes I wish I wasn't hosting so I could be participating on the live chat or say I, I could be getting into it with people and, and some of the comments. So we just don't take them for granted. I know I don't read them all the time. I got a, I had a, uh, a strongly worded email this morning when I showed up to work. You know who you are. Um, some someone that was that was alluding to. They were wondering if maybe some of our live chat participants are paying me. They wondered. They said you're reading their comments way more than you're reading mine. And I okay. I said I'm not really keeping score. But the fact of the matter is, is that is the indicator that we have a very engaged audience, which is the best possible problem that a talk show could ever have that, that that so many people are chiming in that we almost feel like we don't have enough time to get to all the comments that's the absolute best you do know of course that in just a moment we'll be getting to some of your comments uh the ones that you've submitted through the week to talk at ryanjesperson.com things that are driving you a little bit nuts but first, let me remind you that the countdown is on to this year's Canadian Rural and Remote Housing and Homelessness Symposium is hosted by the Rural Development Network and the Rural Ontario Institute. At the end of the day, we want to cut through the noise and get to the heart of what matters to rural communities. Here's your chance to share issues, strategies, and solutions that have been made by rural for rural Every registration includes access to all the conference sessions, virtual exhibition hall, networking, and exclusive one-on-ones with CMHC's housing specialists. You can get your housing questions answered without providing documents, anything like that. Best of all, you get access to all the recorded sessions after the event. And Real Talk audience members get a special offer, an exclusive 20% off registration costs when you use the code RYAN. Get your tickets today at C-R-R-H.ca. That's C rrhh.ca 20% off when you use the code word Ryan right after the show I'm on my way out to St. Albert Dodge I'm very excited to check in with the team there actually going to be swapping out the Grand Cherokee I've been driving for another one and I'm telling you it's an exciting moment because anytime you get behind the wheel of a brand new Jeep you get to see why they've been recognized for years as the best bang for buck value in the SUV market now they've got the luxury one coming out the Grand Wagoneer there's the Grand Cherokee I've been driving then they got the Cherokee and the Patriot and everything else there's a jeep to fit whatever your need is haven't even mentioned like the rubicon wrangler which is always one that i kind of do a double look at st albert and you like that one sam the rubicon wrangler uh, any of the wranglers would be the one for me i like the rugged jeeps it sort of feels like the time of year where you want a wrangler Ooh, yeah. right go topless for the next six I months I have a standing plan to drive to the Arctic Circle, and I might be hitting up St. Albert Dodge before I do Ooh, that. Maybe we all shouldn't just take the show there. We can do whatever we want. Why don't we do Real Talk Live from the Arctic Circle, presented by our friends at, well, we'll ask them Love if they it. want in. That's going to be pricey, St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. But if you're looking for the best value on a Jeep, or of course, the Ram truck lineup, you know where to find them. Good friends of this show. The team at Eden Landscaping. Uh, should, we, should we do our, our daily check-in with, with Sherry? Sherry is, do we say blossoming or blooming? She's blossoming. Flowers bloom. These are not flowers, technically. Well, they're cherry blossoms. They're cherry that blossoms. Yeah. The cherry blossoms are blooming. Sherry is blossoming and blooming and looking great and healthy and in front of a big window, getting the water she needs. The team at Eden Landscaping, they heard us joking about Sarah having a tree to hug in studio, and they said, well, this is kind of a pretty good way to reiterate that we take people's dreams and turn them into reality. They can do all kinds of things. There she is hugging Sherry. Aww. Is it ironic that we have a tree right next to the printer that pumps out paper all day? 
It's kind of a jerk move, actually, for Sherry. If Sherry's a sentient being, she's like, what are you doing? We don't serve bacon in front of the pigs. Eden Landscaping is like, could you focus? Could you get back onto how we build people's dreams? Retaining walls, beautiful fitstone patios, outdoor kitchens, swim spas, veggie planter boxes. Eden Landscaping has you covered. You can see more of the amazing work that they do at landscapeedmonton.ca. Quick shout out to the team at Westworld Computers. We're loading up here. We've got MacBooks on the go, iMac, iPad, the whole shebang. But the reality is without a partner, without a sponsor, we wouldn't be able to afford all this. We'd be one of the customers that would be going to them saying, tell us more about your gently pre-owned lineup. They have all the software reinstalled. You're not going to wind up with somebody else's weird family photos. And they're re-warrantied. So there's a big amount lopped off the original sticker price. And you have the quality and the guarantee you need. Daryl and his team happy to talk to you today. For more than 40 years, they've been operating family-owned, and they'll ship anywhere via westworld.ca. And finally, our friends at Local Waste. I don't have to tell you that Local Waste loves talking trash. They're going to prove it in just a second. But they also want to talk to you about how they can grow your business with you by cutting off some of the big costs while your revenues maybe aren't as massive. Whether it's a small ma and pa restaurant, a retail shop, whatever it is, a house of hospitality, so to speak, you don't need the big bins that the big shopping malls need. They're not going to try to sell you the most they can sell you. They want to work with you so the relationship's long-term. You get that when you invest in local. Give Mikkel, Lauren, Chris a shout today. You can find all the details details at localwaste.ca. Every Friday, as we wrap up our broadcast, our friends at Local Waste present a little something we call Trash Talk. All right, this one from Maurice, who says, to the people who don't wave in traffic, who hurt you? Who raised you? Who taught you how to drive? Uh, This might be the most Canadian thing to get upset about, but it legitimately ticks me off when I go out of my way to let you in, and you just ignore me. Where's my courtesy nod? Where's my basic appreciation? Where's my freaking wave? Oh, and have a great weekend, real talkers. That from Maurice looking for the wave. What about this from Kimberly who says, Ryan, I love the show and while I appreciate while you rev up your voice for trash talk, I'd like to remind Albertans with muffler packs, motorcycles, or just shitty cars that they don't need to rev up just to make noise in my neighborhood. What purpose does this ear-shattering noise fill? Are they just jerks that need to make noise when the weather finally turns nice or is there actually a reason in their tiny little minds that from kimberly not a harley driver this from shania who says people need to stop being so selfish and entitled when it comes to covid19 it's been made clear people don't give a rat's ass about anybody else except themselves especially those of us that have been staying home for months and following health orders she says into real talkers stay safe and healthy i love that these are all ending on a positive note today Real talk, trash talk, evolving. What about this one from Karen, an Alberta travel consultant, says there's been no fines handed out at the Calgary airport to returning international travelers that are skipping the three-night quarantine. It's because the province hasn't adopted the Federal Contraventions Act, which would allow police to issue tickets for Quarantine Act breaches. If people are skipping the three-night quarantine, what's to say they're not also skipping the 14-night quarantine at home? The travel industry has been shut down for 15 months, and this is doing nothing to 
to help us open up again. All it's doing is letting more rule breakers get away with it. This is how variants get in. We need to have more real talk about this fiasco. That from Karen. This one from Doug. Doug says short and sweet. Sorry, Sarah, just about gave you a paper cut on the forehead with that one. My apologies. Doug says short and sweet. I can't believe the junior high school level drama around a political party that's demonstrating it's not interested in leading. They missed the basics the UCP did of understanding a small government, as many of you believe is necessary, is in fact still government and public service and providing critical services and supports to Albertans. When a global pandemic rages, Albertans are instead subjected to more drama, no data, no evidence, no science, no expertise, no leadership. What do I hear? The roar of the UCP Albertosaurus asking the UCP right now to drop the writ so Albertans can get on with living and building a great province. Doug wants an election right now. How about this one from Nancy who says, Premier, you went on, you know, you've been blaming everybody right now for being unsupportive of your government through this pandemic, including the opposition NDP. Says, when it all comes down to it, this from Nancy in St. Albert, I don't believe you on anything, Premier. I don't believe you weren't aware of the Facebook post from your justice minister calling out the media, the opposition, and the federal government. You may not have technologically read it, so you can technically get away with saying you didn't see it, but I have no doubt somebody told you about it, or you've got a brutal staff. I'm also certain you've already contacted the minister regarding the post. Perhaps not you yourself, but there was definitely communication. I will finish by saying when people show you who they are, believe them. That from Maya Angelou. I do not lack belief. That from Nancy in St. Albert. And finally, this from Marshall, the angry wild roser. An open letter to the Premier submitted to trash talk. Says, Premier, your leadership's been built on a corrupt base of cheating and lies during the leadership race. We're now seeing the fruits of a tree with rotten roots. Those of us who supported you through donations, lawyers, car dealerships, oil and gas, MLAs, we need to take responsibility to remove you now. None of us are blameless. Marshall's kind of trash talking himself through this. He says, stop the drinking. We deserve better. Stop the lying. We deserve better. Stop the manipulation of our executive. We deserve better. Stop hiding from a leadership review. Guess what? We deserve better, says Marshall. Stop the ministers who coerce, intimidate, and bully our constituency associations into signing support letters for you. We deserve better. This is obviously an insider perspective, friends. Stop the ministers who refuse to have CA meetings because they're afraid of what they may say. We deserve better. Stop the backroom deals regarding car insurance. We deserve better. Stop the bullying of my MLA. I don't know which one it is. Marshall says he deserves better. Stop the fraudulent expenses. We deserve better. Stop the open war on strong women inside your government. We deserve better, says Marshall. The next leader of this province will be a woman. It's up to you, Jason. Will it be Rachel or someone from the UCP? We know who we're supporting. That from Marshall, the angry wild roser. Monday's show kicks off with a bang. Sarah Hoyles has a great one in store. In the meantime, a reminder, ryanjesperson.com, 8 a.m. Mountain, 10 a.m. Eastern. Tomorrow, our merch shop is wide open. In the meantime, have an amazing weekend, friends, and we'll talk to you soon.